what's happening? <clears throat> Nothing, man. Still uh, recovering from the row. Nah. Um, I will not be smoking a cigar this evening because it's Boo. pointless. It's pointless. I can barely taste this cup of coffee. So. Oh, I feel you. Well, <clears throat> this is episode 92 of Snakes and Stokes. Is it 92 or is it there? It's got to be 92 because I thought your thing earlier said 91 and I put 91. No, oh, no, it's 92. 91 yeah. was last week. Well, obviously. I'm sick. I have an excuse. But tonight's well, show and every show is brought to you by the fine people of Puget Sound Pythons. Up here in the corner. Right up. Yeah. yeah. Right where it says live. Gendra. The Gendra. Jeff and Kendra. Do, do I So I am particularly weird? excited because you're a little nasally, but that's it. Okay. Nothing. All right. Nothing too uh, too intense. Sounds good. Um, but I got we got this new La Roma de Cuba. It's a new release. It's the Passion. I don't know if y'all can. Y'all probably can't see it. You posted it earlier on, uh, I believe, on the Snakes and Stogies Facebook group. I did. So I was excited just. I don't know. I like the label's awesome. Like it's this nice mint green. Like there's something about some cigar labels that just makes a cigar look tasty. I don't know what it is, but I've been excited to try this since they announced that it was even being released. So without further ado, what is it supposed to be fine. like? Katie's asking how you are. I'm alive. Don't, 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 don't. you're going to trip over my thing. Yes, we are. Are you surviving? I am surviving. What's up, wifey? You're looking lovely I'm this evening. Your care package, but the only thing I knew to put in it were Camel Crush cigarettes. <laughs> uh, do you just get a thrill out of crushing a little thing? No, I I like the the flavor and the taste. I've always been a Camel guy, and uh, and they came out with my my. I had an ex that smoked what was called a number nine. It was like a pink girl yeah. brand. Yes. And I smoked those and they had the thing in it. And that was it was before crush was a thing. And then they came out with the, the crush and I smoked them and I found myself just, just always popping it, you know? So I was like, I might as well just buy camel menthols. So <laughs> that's what we smoke these days. So are you still symptomatic or are you on the mend? I'm I'm definitively on the mend, and uh, I went back to work today, first day, and uh, it was rough. I, I took it easy. I, I barely did anything, which is fine. So just it was the most movement I've done in like ten days. So are you getting worn out pretty easily, or are you? Um, not not as easy as you'd imagine, but I definitely like at least two times today. I sat down, and was like, I gotta just take a break, you know. Oh gosh. So. And I, I really, I was only doing inventory paperwork and stuff, but I'm still walking around checking inventory. And uh, I'm literally just walking with like a clipboard and yeah. just doing that over and over and over again. I was like, you know what? 
let me sit in this office chair for a little while, have a <laughs> cigarette, you know. Yeah, that'll help. Yeah, it does. It does. So. We didn't have any particular topic lined up, but I actually have an idea for one that we will get into momentarily. I know, and I, I'm, I'm always, I'm, I don't want to say I'm apprehensive when you and I don't talk about the show for that night, but at the same time, like I'm, I'm afraid because I'm like, oh God, what if we don't have anything to talk about? And I'm like, I remind myself, no, we will have something to talk There's about. There's always something. There's always something. See, to that's talk. what I'm always like, how, how many episodes have you done? Of this, yeah, ninety-two. This and is ninety-two. And then, like over two hundred of two hundred and twenty-four of everything total combined. Yeah, like how have you not run out of stuff to talk about yet? <laughs> Gee, it's thanks, lady. Stuff. Right, <laughs> thanks a lot. <laughs> no, get out of my clubhouse. I'm just saying it's it's like I would imagine the subject matter is pretty finite. False. It is extremely false. I literally. I, I don't go on Facebook that much these days, maybe a few times a week. I just went on before the show and I learned like four things about snakes I didn't know. Huh. Just wham. There and we're was. really good at, at going on and on about stuff that Everywhere. probably isn't that worthy of going on about. Well, I think also we're, we're always thirsty for knowledge, right? whether it be snakes or reptiles in general or just anything in the world, right? We're always, you, me, the three of us, we're always thirsty for knowledge. And there's so many people that chime into our shows that have maybe not heard what we talked about before. So we can bring up a topic, give a cliff note, you know, and that segues into the next branch or the next line or the next chapter of it. Yeah. And it just keeps snowballing, you know? That makes sense. Knowledge is power, Katie. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll leave you guys to it. Thanks, I'm Mom. glad you're doing good. Thank you very much. It's lovely to see you what? in the flesh. He said, thanks for checking in on him. You're his favorite. I know. You guys are so far away now. <laughs> like, far we're away. Far away now because we're sitting in this chair. <clears throat> Bye. Oh, there's Gendra. Hey. We got a full house tonight. Got JT, got BJ, got DC, MK, you know, the usual suspects. You know what's awesome that I learned about this? So you know how on like a Chrome tab or a, mic, a tab when you go to view, you can zoom in on a page or zoom out on a page? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you do that with StreamYard, it only blows up the stuff around. Like it keeps the the actual window that we see the same, but it blows up everything else around it. Oh, okay. So like I can see the chat better from here when I zoom in in like two clicks. Yeah. But it keeps our it keeps us the same, so I don't have to worry about like it only blowing that up. Awesome. That's good. Yeah, because I mean, let's be real. You don't need to see you or me. You know, but you right. need to see the chat. Yeah. Yeah, just I'm makes it uh, easier to read. My eyes ain't getting any better, damn it. Yeah, I'm about 18 inches from the screen. <laughs> it's good enough for me. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so Jeff and Kendra are our awesome sponsors for Snakes and Stogies. And then as of today, Hair Hollow Farm is now the official sponsor of Corn Stars. So Jessica Hare, who does Hair Hollow Farm, breeds some awesome corns. Please go check her out on Instagram and Facebook. She has some really, really awesome stuff. She messaged us and said, hey, I want to support you guys. And 
nice. we're always sharing her page and, and post uh, posts in the group chat anyways so she's also in the in the uh yeah they're local to, to jeff and kendra as well she's also in the pacific northwest which i thought was funny so nice i don't know we're so. we're, we're we're linking very the cool west yes that's right pn pnw is coming in strong legit i still gotta find there was that radio ad from i think it was lithium on uh what's up pop father um, I think it was on Lithium on Sirius XM when they had their 90s alternative channel. And it was like listening yeah. to the, the cool sounds of the Puget Sound or whatever. I, I got to find that recording and send it to them. I do want to make the Snakes and Stogies intro more official. Well, I, I like I wanna, the, the I podcast, a... like the audio version. I liked it a lot, you know? <clears throat> Yeah, but it's just you music. Just, I just want my to yeah. get someone to do like a cheap voiceover on Fiverr or something. Of what? So, just an introduction because it's the show. It's the only show, oh, okay. like the only show that doesn't have an official sort of intro. It's just the music. Yeah. I don't know. Everything's got to match. Yeah, you got a point. I'll work on Everything's something. Got to figure something out. Um. Trying to think if there's anything else pertinent that has happened. Nothing uh, exciting in the past week. By the way, I did listen to the episode of you and Jake and the people that you're inspired by. Uh, and I thank you kindly for your wonderful words, both you and Jake. You guys are amazing. I love you both. It was a good show. We got a lot of good feedback on that. Yeah. yeah it was, I mean, like we were like halfway through it and I was kind of like, man, I feel like we're kind of just breezing through some of these and... It's going to be people are going to kind of be like, eh, I don't really care about this. But I, I mean, the feedback is really good. People were really happy. I don't hand people say, uh, you know, they were glad, once again, glad to hear Jake's voice again. You know, they said nothing against Phil, but I, you know, I, I missed having Jake around. And I, I explained it's actually, it works out really well because when we were doing two shows a week together. Yeah. It kind of felt like it was starting to get a little hard to like, like we were talking about before, like, we, we were in we were talking so much week to week that it was like well I already know what's new with Phil there's nothing really <laughs> yeah what could have possibly happened in three days <laughs> right right. <laughs> right yeah so it works out you know and, uh, there is a new snakes and stogie sampler there's a handful that left that um, had a hand, couple people buy one Andy bought one he said the he's digging the perdomo I put a perdomo Habano Connecticut torpedo nice. in that sampler which is it's a great blend. And uh, if anyone's interested and you're 21 or over, hit me up. Isn't that crazy? 21 or older now. Yeah. it's if, if I'm being honest, I didn't. When it was 18, I didn't card very much, mostly because it's we don't really get kids yeah. in the shop. So it, unless you look like you were 12, I didn't typically card. Now that it's 21, I definitely do more and... There's actually been a few times where I've had people from out of town who were trying to buy some cigars and I, you know, they're 20 and it sucked. Cause I was like, I can't do it, man. And they're yeah. like, why? I was like the national age is now 21. And they were like, really? They're, you know, I buy them still where I, you know, where I come from. And I'm like, I, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. It famous sucks. last words. 
it's yeah. stupid. I mean, it really doesn't affect us because, like I said, our demographic for cigars is typically like <laughs> upper 20s, early 30s and up. Yeah. Um, kids aren't running out to go and buy cigars. They're hitting up the vape shops and all that crap. Uh, yeah. So I always feel bad because the ones that do come in, like they usually pick out some good stuff. Like they're actually into cigars. It'd be like like Irvin, like Thomas coming in yeah. trying to buy some cigars. I mean, he's he's old enough you know now but it <laughs> right. had been a couple years ago it would suck because i know he has he has really good tastes and he likes really good stuff and to turn him down yeah you know, it would be, be a bummer yeah i uh i i can confidently say that when i was in high school i bought a lot of things that i was not supposed to uh, honestly for other people just because i already had the deep voice and uh and then i just remember when they changed the tobacco to 21 and like i started getting carded looking the way i do now and i was like what is happening this is i didn't get carded when i was 16 you know You're I'm sure it now. was the same way for a lot of other people they were like i'm not gonna card yeah. unless you l literally look like a child right right yeah we get a lot of young marines and stuff because we have a marine corps recruiting depot here in Beaufort to paris island if you're a marine you've probably been there you either went there to 29 palms in california um and even then like most of them are mid-20s you know we just we don't get a lot of younger younger folks it's not yeah it's that's why they're trying to separate the premium tobacco of cigars from everything else because like yeah all the dutch masters and like grape flavored and vanilla and all that other stuff they're totally you know that is that demographic Right, but they're right. also not smoking it because it's a cigar. They're using it for other purposes. Right. Um, Typically illegal purposes. That's not like that's, we don't be. advertise. Yeah. Right. Like you go through any cigar magazine, all that ads are mature for lack of a better word. They're not like people dressed in colorful outfits and like partying or anything like that. And like it's right. Usually a picture of a tobacco field in a barn and a cigar. Like that's so that yeah. I mean none of the none of the market's really targeted towards that that demographic. Right. Yeah, it's a it's a sixteen year old high school kid is not rushing out in a, a full Armani suit with a Rolex and a snifter of scotch. It's not happening. So Right. Well that's also like the the average price of cigars. I mean, like you're looking at like 10 bucks. Kids aren't going to spend $10 yeah. on a single cigar when they could go and buy a, you know, 20 Dutch masters or whatever else. So that gas station garbage, uh, you know, right. I don't know. Yeah. What's weird is I remember I had heard rumors that the age had been lit up, like raised to 21. And so I went to the, so the FDA website and looked around and there was like no mention of it anywhere. Like I did some, some serious Googling and couldn't find anything on any sort of official website that said, this is for sure what's happening. It just kind of happened. And they were like, everyone will get the message. You know, they'll tell each other. And it was, it was very odd. Like you would think something like that, which I, I mean, it is a big deal. I think like it's kind of, it's sort of an important announcement, especially yeah. for retailers. Um, that they should know these kinds of things, and there was never any sort of big, large, mass 
article or email sent out saying, hey, guys, heads up. Legal age is now 21 instead of 18. So. Yeah. And I, I actually just Googled uh, legal smoking age by state um, just to see if there was anything that was still 18. And there's not. Everything's 21 now. Mm-hmm. So. And yeah, it got to the point too where I just assumed, like, because I didn't hear anything officially, it was like, hey, I guess it's 21 now. Like, start yeah. really carding. And I know, like, when it's a corporate, they, they was like, if they look like they're younger than 40, make sure you ID. And it's like, really? I'd have older people that were like, seriously? And it's like, dude, I got to do it. I don't have a choice. Well, what I think is interesting is that by me, certain corporate businesses, uh, they ask for the ID not because they're actually carding you, but they have to put your birthday in. Otherwise, it won't let them right. finish the transaction. Right. Which they do that I, now. It wasn't always that way, right? Which I think is stupid because a clerk can just put whatever they want. You know what I mean? Sometimes they make you scan it, like you yeah, have to actually well, scan it now. Which uh, to me, it, it takes all the all the pressure off the cashiers and having been in that position at one point, I would definitely feel a lot less stupid if it was actually something I had to physically do to make the transaction end, like to finish yeah. it. So instead of saying, yeah, I got a card you cause you look like you're younger than 40. And then them, you know, someone who's like 70 going or not even, you know, 50, whatever going really. It's like, I know you're over 21 or 18 dude. It's like, I just, they, it's policy. I don't have a choice, but now when it's actually having to scan, it's like, I yeah. have to do it. I don't have a choice. If I don't scan it, you don't get your cigarettes or whatever. And, right. You know, so, I, uh, It's actually, I have a funny story. Uh, one of my best friends growing up, we, I mean, we're still good friends. He lives in, in New York now. Um, he's, a, <laughs> he's a six foot four Jamaican guy, right? Very tall, lean, always had a shaved head. Even, you know, before, um, he, he didn't lose his hair. He just always shaved his head, you know, and uh, very, very clean cut uh, uh, jazz musician. And what do you play? He, uh, drums. He played kit, nice. jazz, f- like five piece jazz kit. And uh, <clears throat> he used to go to a lot of the bars and clubs because he was in the bartending scene and, you know, uh, I don't want to call it high end waiter, you know what I mean? But like the concierge world and the restaurant and stuff like that down here. And when he was like 19 or 20, he started dating the supermodel and I don't know if she was Victoria's Secret or something. It's one of those big, like a legit supermodel. And he starts dating her because he met her at some club somewhere doing some promotion thing. And they dated for like four or five months. And they went to a club one night. And the bouncer at the door was like, hey, man, I need your ID. And he's like, oh, I don't have it. And she had already walked into the club and like started heading towards the coat room. Damn. And he's like, look, man, I got to be honest with you. Like, I'm not 21. I won't drink. Like you can give me a little wristband or something. Like she doesn't know I'm under 21. Like, can you please, like, you know, help a, bro- help a brother out? <laughs> and uh, hold on, there's an airplane going over my head. Excuse me, folks. And uh, the bouncer said no, and he walked away from my friend, found the girlfriend, tapped her on the shoulder, spilled the beans to her face. She got her coat walked out and was like, Hey, can you take me home? And he never heard from her ever again. And it, it wasn't even like it was a big age gap. I mean, she was like 24. He was like 20. Right. It was just the fact that he had this, you know, persona or whatever. So I always felt bad for him for that. 
which I thought it was, it was stupid. You know, he can work in the industry and make money and sell liquor and do all these other things, but yeah, he can't drink it. It's crazy. Uh, so Billy Jenkins actually just messaged me about the sampler. So in this one is the LFD 20th anniversary, the McAuliffe ambassador, the Perdomo Habano, Connecticut, the Fumo. I forget what that one even is, honestly, but they're they're pretty strong. They're decent. And then the Fiat Lux, which is the new one that I was smoking last week from uh, Luciano and Crownheads. And I'm currently looking up the blend on this this La Roma. It's very good. Right, right off the rip, it's pretty interesting. Much very different from the other La Roma uh, La Aroma de Cuba stuff. Um, it's a shade going wrapper. Let's see. So the La Roma de Cuba website says Passion boasts a stunning shade grown wrapper from the celebrated fields of Namahi, where tobacco plants thrive in a unique microclimate 18 miles east of Esteli. Uh, the Garcias recognized the region's untapped potential more than a decade ago. Warm days, cool nights, and fertile black soils produced tobaccos of exceptional flavor, quality, and aroma. Today, over one third of the private 300 acre estate is dedicated to shade grown wrapper on plots shielded from direct sunlight and nourished by the basin's snaking river. Very cool. Every leaf of wrapper, binder, and filler harvested for Passione undergoes a meticulous triple fermentation with respect to traditional methods. Profound notes of smoked cashew, leather, cedar, and molasses layer the palate with an extravagant spice and medium to full-bodied finish. Savor a shining specimen of Garcia family terroir. Terroir? Guided by an unwavering dedication to growing, aging, and blending the finest tobaccos in the world. Uh, and so far, I mean, those tasting notes are actually pretty spot on. Like that molasses, I definitely pick up a little bit. And you guys know how I feel about tasting notes. I feel like it's it's uh, hit or information miss. bias. Yeah. But so uh, it's Ryan pretty Cox. interesting. I mean, it is it is a little different. Um, That's good. And you're still in the first third, right? You just lit it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, yep. uh, good, good. Uh, Ryan Cox says, uh, so what does shade do to tobacco here in Kentucky? It's all full sun fields of tobacco and shade is a no-no. And I'm glad he brought that up because uh, I personally, as much There's as... a very you, large difference. Very large difference. As much as, you know, a good sun-grown tobacco is still delicious, I really like the shade stuff. I do. So, Justin, would you like to expand a little on that? Yes. So... Connecticut, when you see a Connecticut wrapper, or with the exception being Connecticut broadleaf, because that's typically a Maduro, which is dark, almost black. Uh, when you see a Connecticut wrapper or Connecticut on a box, that is typically a, well, that is a shade-grown tobacco. So what they do is they either grow it under cheesecloth, uh, but as of it seems like the last handful of years, Ecuador has been a big growing region for these Connecticut leaf uh, wrappers and tobaccos because of the natural cloud cover. Ecuador has cloud cover very similar to Connecticut um, most of the year. So it's naturally shady. So what happens is, is these plants get a lot, they stay smaller. One, the leaves stay thinner and it results in just a much more mild, uh, flavor profile, but I do find that you will see a lot of varying degree in in Connecticut's with the spiciness or the pepperiness. 
there's some like the My Father Connecticut, which is is fairly peppery. And then you have like the Hoya de Nicaragua Antonio, Connecticut, which is one I recommend a lot. And that one's more of a creamy, uh, the Connecticut, the Habano, Connecticut, that's in the sampler currently is another one. That's not really very heavy on the pepper. It's a nice creamy, but still sort of fuller, like heavier smoke, if that makes any sense. Um, so it's not a strong cigar at all, but just, it has a lot of like, if, when you hear people talk about body, that would be my my definition of like a mild smoke, but a fuller bodied cigar, because it's just, it's a heavier, heavier smoke that flavors are a little heavier, but it's not anything that's going to like blow out your palate for, you know, half a day or whatever. So, and then the difference is it's like sun grown, uh, which I mean, if it's not grown, if it's not shade grown, it's probably sun grown. And that's stuff that's out in full sun. The plants get huge. The leaves get thick. And it results in a much more, much stronger, fuller flavored cigar. For the most part. I I like this photo um, because I know that there's a certain, uh, I don't, I don't know the brands off the top of my head, but there are certain farms where you'll notice that these plants here, they'll give them more sunlight and half the plant will have you know a darker hue to it and mm-hmm. they'll have more sun exposure and the other half of it won't and they'll blend that together just to give it a little extra something you know what i mean mm-hmm. um and then at the same time i like that they can almost feather it where if a crop is not doing what they want it to as long as it's within a certain time frame they can peel the sheet back so to speak and just let it get more sun and obviously they have to be honest and, and truthful in what they're doing but they're, they're not going to market it as a sun grown tobacco because it lived, you know, the majority of its life mm-hmm. under shade, but, but it definitely, they can feather it and kind of tailor it to how the plants reacting too, depending on the time of year or whatever. And actually in that regard, there's something. So Dunbarton tobacco and trust has this in compromiso, which is a fantastic cigar. It is a little more expensive, but it is worth every penny. Uh, and what he does, what Steve Saka does with those is he, if I recall from what he told me, it could be more or less, the number could be wrong, but he chops off the leaves of two thirds of the plant, even when they're small. And so the, the wrapper and the tobaccos for that, all the nutrients and stuff for that particular line go to the top third only. And so you get like these hyper, uh, I'm going to say nutriated, but I know that's not a word. Um, yeah. So he cuts off the, like literally the bottom two thirds of the leaves. So nothing, gets all that the nutrients from the soils and stuff but that top third right and it it's a very unique tobacco and i mean whether there's really something to it or not i don't know it is a it's a unique flavored cigar it's a very good cigar uh it could just be a, a marketing thing Saka seemed when you know we were hanging out with him Saka seemed like a pretty straight shooter um but i mean there's it's the cigar world there's a lot of gimmicks and I don't think Sokka's a gimmick guy, but yeah, I wouldn't. It's kind of so. like like craft beer. People saying we only use water from the Swiss Alps, right? You know, and it's like, does it make a difference? Who's to say? Some people might think so. Some people won't. You know, so I'm trying to find some some of their farming pictures uh, just to kind of get an idea 
uh, and like see see the plant in action when it's at that pivotal point, you know. But they don't have a picture of it, unfortunately. They got a lot of really cool photography though, all the drawing rooms and everything. Mm-hmm. So, but what did Cox say? Let's see that. Uh, really, that's is the side of the shade cloth, so it's probably actually dropped usually, but was lifted for the photo. Yeah. Yeah, that one that I had where the, the cloth was rolled up, mm-hmm. yeah. They probably, again, like Doc said, did it for the photo. But but still, I know that they, they may do that. If if they got a straight week of overcast, you know, they've got to feather a little bit. It's got to get some UV, you know, otherwise you're going to start to have wilting and, you know, bad veins and you know, you can also uh, I- increase uh, certain pests because now they're they're not being deterred by the sun per se. So there's there's definitively an art form to it. Yep, there's a lot more to it than people realize. You know, the blends themselves, the infinite combinations of blends and then sizes, and it's a crop. So year to year, things may change, things may not taste the same. You know, a cigar from Fresh out of a box from from 2019 will probably taste different from a something from the same line from 2014. You know, things just things change. It depends on how long it's aged and stuff too. So, oh yeah, we did get a new Rocky Patel in that I tried earlier today. It was the uh, <clears throat> Disciple. Okay, it was pretty much like every other Rocky in my opinion. It was. Meh. There's a couple Rockies that are really solid, but for the most part, I'm I'm really not into them. They just their portfolio is huge, and it's just not that great. So, yeah, it um, to be honest, I can appreciate Rocky, um, but again, I've I've not me personally, I've not been that impressed. A few of the ones you gave me were pretty good, um, but I'm not gonna rush out and mm-hmm. grab one specific off the top of my head. That's just me. I just, I notice with a lot of brands, the ones that have smaller portfolios like warped and yeah. Romacraft and even Padron for that matter, they know what they do. They know that they do it well and they keep it to that core core group. Right. When you look at brands like Gurkha and Rocky where they're, I, I can open up like a CI catalog and see a cigar from Rocky that I've never seen before, but they've probably been selling for years. Same with Gurkha. It's like, they're just, to me, they're, they're a mile wide and inch deep. You know, it's it's like you can have a ton of awesome cigars, but they're a ton of cigars. But if most of them are mediocre, then what's the point? Yeah. Yeah. There was that new Gurkha. Um, I'm trying to pull it up right now because I feel like, man, I can't remember the name of it. And, that's probably a bad thing, you know, when you've got so many in the catalog. Um, yeah. The Black and, Dragon, that's what it was. And Dan said the the decade, as far as Rocky stuff goes, and that is, in my opinion, probably their best cigar, the decade. Their their winter blend is really good. Um, the 1990s is good. The 99, which is their Connecticut, is good. But, you know, there's just outside of sort of the their big core lines, like their big, big brands. Uh, the Sun Grown Maduro is fantastic. Um, but everything outside of that, just, just, I don't, I'm not into it, you know, it's just not, not good. Yeah. I never smoke one and go, man, I have to have another one of those at some point. Like I got to grab another. 
Yeah, see, I thought the Black Dragon was a relatively new stick, and I just found a review uh, <laughs> from 2016, mm-hmm. and it was reposted in tw- November of 2020. So apparently it has been floating around for some time, and I guess I just never saw it. <laughs> so... Yeah, and they've they've got a few like the Black Ops and some other stuff that it's like you only see them in the catalogs for CI or Holtz or any of these big online retailers. And I mean they're usually very cheap, and it's uh, uh, to me it's like they just slap a Gurkha label on it because it'll sell. You know they don't they don't actually have anything invested in that that tobacco and that cigar. But right, and it, and it's disheartening too. It's like I I know the owner of Gurkha personally and. He's given me some phenomenal Nicaraguan mm-hmm. stuff, but again, the stuff I got from him and some of the stuff that he told me physically to buy, phenomenal. Yeah. But when I go to a store and I just buy the random Gurkha, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to rush out and do it. You know, that's why I saw this and I was like, oh, this had a phenomenal review. I should have looked at the date in which it was produced. Mm-hmm. But it, it makes me wonder how many of these large companies have a. Um, uh, dare I say a surplus of a particular, you know, leaf, whether it be a filler or a binder or whatever, they augment production of one particular leaf just so that they can use what they've already got holding mm-hmm. and then do a limited edition. You know what I mean? It's entirely possible. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Uh, there are some companies that will literally buy a line or a blend from another company and slap their label on it and just tell you it's something different. Um, sure. As far as Gurkha goes, man, that black label seller reserve, that 18, I think the yeah. 15, that hands down the best Gurkha. Yeah. I mean, all the other Gurkhas I've had, I was not not particularly impressed with, but that one, man, that is... that's a Yeah, big I one. would agree. I would agree. So I still have a box of reserved Nicaraguans given to me from the owner of Gurkha. And uh, I keep meaning to do, actually, I have my, my Gurkha ashtray with me right now. Yeah, Dan Dan got one of those Gurkhas from me. That, nice. That black label, and he said the yeah. same thing. It was phenomenal. So. The, um, but I have a full box of the Nicaraguans, and I've been waiting to crack it open because I wanted to do uh, a live video, whether it be on Facebook or Instagram mm-hmm. or, or on Six and Sogies, just because a lot of people, and maybe this is just me, but I personally can't afford to buy an entire box of sticks. So, like, for example, Liga Provada number nine, hands down my favorite cigar. Every time I go to the $500 store. $500 a box. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and, but no, but but every time I go to the, to, to, the, to the cigar bar, I can afford to buy two or three of them right. at, you know, $16 a piece, whatever they are. And that's what I do. So every time I go, I'll buy two or three Toros, two or three Toros, two or three Toros. And eventually, like now, I'm pretty sure I have more than a whole box just sitting in the humidor. But it's Do they not rare. do box deals at your shop? They do, but it's still, it's so much money, man. I'd rather just buy a couple here and there. You know, it's I'm not smoking them every day. Um, so, like, I've probably got maybe 25 or 30 number nines out on hand, you know, but I never bought a box before just because it's, like you said, 400 change when you've got your discount um but to me other than the time i bought the intemperance get a a box of 24 from me for 307 and change that's the 20 percent off that's 24 cigars but 
Yeah, I mean, that's still it's a lot of money that's to drop on sticks all at once, you know. Um, but in fact, there's only been a few times in my life I bought a whole box of cigars. The most recent in the past decade has been when I bought those Intemperance for um, for uh, Carter Fest. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that was still even with a, a major discount. I think that was still like 180 bucks for 24 cigars or however many come in their yeah. box. But so many people don't get to see all the cool stuff that goes into a box in terms of peeling the cellophane, that first, that first fresh smell, you know, sliding the wooden lid off, you know, cause the, the, it's all hickory, you know, and then your certificates and your, uh, yeah, if there's it drives me crazy. Uh, yeah. I mean, you do it for a living every day, but to someone who's never done it before, I think it's super cool. It's very interesting. All the Oliva stuff has a little pamphlet in it and the, the the gift paper stuff. Yeah, but see, you're looking at I'm it. I'm like, dude, to stop packing all this shit in your boxes. We yeah, just, but you're it, looking at it from a a, a jaded point of view, right? Imagine this is your first. You just got into cigars. You've been smoking for a few months. You say, you know what? I really fell in love with this particular Oliva. I'm gonna go buy a whole box. You know, and you feel good about yourself. Maybe you got a, a bonus from work, and you go in the store, and you're like, I'll take a whole box of them. And you get home and you cut the cellophane off, or, you, or let's say it's you know it's got the import wrapper with the, uh, the little import tape that they put on it. You know you have to crack the seal. That's a that's a cool experience, you know. The worst ones are the acids and the Esteban Carreras because they pack that dry tobacco in around the cigars. Yeah, and it's so dry it like you touch it and it just turns to dust. Yeah, I get that. And then it gets all over the floor. And then I have to vacuum, and I'm like, I hate this. It yeah, drives but, me nuts. It's like, we don't need all this crap, man. Just yeah, but, want the cigars. But you're looking at it from someone that opens multiple boxes a day every day of their life. You know, someone someone who who is uh, passionate about, like, uh, like our friend Noah, okay? Dude, you know that every time he opens a box of sticks – he, you know, he takes a few moments. He looks at it. He thinks about what beer he's going to drink with it. All that, you know what I mean? Like to me, it's part of the the whole. I don't want to say the ambiance, but the whole experience of cracking open that box. You know, I don't know. Maybe I'm glorifying it. It's a little romanticized. I'm a romantic individual. But I mean, I will say, like the Habanos, the Connecticut Habanos from Perdomo, like opening a fresh box of those. Those yeah. I do enjoy. That is a nice because you get there. It's aged in whiskey barrels, so you do get a slight sort of or bourbon barrel, should I say? You get a little bit of that bourbon, yeah, fragrance. We're actually do that. So that's what you get for buying acids. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> that is that is true. <laughs> Uh, Dan asked, do I have an everyday cigar? Do I just spread the wealth? It kind of varies. I think, I mean, Roma stuff is definitely something that I, I smoke more than anything else. I think the Aquitaine Toros or the Cranium is the size they have it labeled as. It's just a Toro. Um, those are nine ninety five, and those are, to me, that's, that's like the perfect size and a lot of the Roma blends. It works really well. Those are the Coronas. Um, I really like the Intemperance Connecticut's. You know, yeah. seven ninety five for a, like a robusto or a small perfecto. Those are those are great. Uh, it just kind of depends on my mood, but 
the Charter Oaks, which I know we've talked about a lot. That Charter yeah. of Connecticut is an absolute banger for six ninety five. That is a fantastic smoke, and that's that's something with my discount I can get a box for for cheap, and I really ought to start doing that and loading up my humidor because I have zero issue smoking those Charter Oak Connecticut's daily. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. a great great cigar. CEO Brazilians are good too. Even though I'm told, you know what's interesting with those? I'm told by a lot of guys that have been in cigars way longer than I have. They claim that that blend changed at some point. Like CAO changed that blend around and never said anything about it, never told anybody. And I actually wonder if the same thing happened with the Oliva Milanios. Because I remember smoking those back in probably like 2016. And it was very good. Like the regular Melanios, not the Maduros, uh, the regular. And I smoke those Melanios now. And I'm like, this is not the cigar I remember. So I, and the, you also notice how cheap those get sold now on like Cigar Bid and some of those other websites. And so it makes me wonder if they also sort of pulled the rug out from people as far as that blend goes and changed it up. It, but you know what? Sometimes it may be out of their control. You know what I mean? It could have been... They had to buy from a different supplier or to some degree. You know what I mean? Who knows? Soil quality could have changed. Who knows? It's just, it's interesting because you're paying the same price as you were six years ago. But the cigar yeah. does not taste the same. Like Brasilias, they're not crazy expensive or anything like that. Neither are the Melanias, but still, it's like, I feel like, yeah. And Dan's with me. He knows what's up. He still has his certificates from last year. Uh, another one that I, I'm a huge fan of as a, a regular smoke, uh, if you want to dabble into Maduro and stuff, the um, I always butcher the name, uh, Herrera Esteli, the uh, Drew Estate Brazilian mm -hmm. Maduro, the, the yes. baby blue wrapper. The Toro. That's a great, the Toro, that's a great smoke. I mean, I'm a Toro guy through and through. That's a great smoke. And I'm a big Corona guy, and I got excited when I pulled one of those bad boys out in the Corona, yeah. and that was – it was really not great. And it, what's funny is I really like the Brazilian Maduro, but the Miami, the black band, mm -hmm. I didn't didn't care for it. It was blah. It's, yeah, it's it's okay. I think you if you do that in the – there's two – Two sizes for sure. They may do an Alance Arrow. I can't remember, at least for the black label. There's a Corona, and then there's one that's slightly larger. The Corona, I can't remember if it's the smaller gauge or the slightly larger gauge that I liked more. I want to say it might have been the smaller one. But, yeah, I'm the same way. I've smoked them multiple times. Because usually if I smoke something I don't like it, I'll give it another shot. I'll let yeah. them sit for a little while, let them breathe, let them, uh, you know, just settle a little bit after <clears throat> opening a fresh, fresh box and putting them on the shelf. And I'll come yeah. back to them a couple weeks later, a couple months later, and sometimes they get better, sometimes they're the same. And then if it's a second time where I'm just like I ain't feeling it, then I'll come back to them six months later, a year later, and try it and see if it gets any better. And no. it's a three strikes sort of thing for me. But uh, yeah, I'm the same way. I smoke multiple ones of those, and they're not bad by any means. But it was yeah. just another one where I was like, if I'm paying twelve ninety five for this, I'm just gonna get a Neanderthal. I got you. I got, I well, I don't have them by me. Man. When you start getting into that price range of like Neanderthals and the Liga stuff, you know, that $15 range and up, it's yeah. like, that's my, that's my, my, my threshold. It's like, would I rather have this or a Liga? Yeah. You know, this or a T52. Right. And 
new stuff it's different because i'm gonna try it but then if i if i don't care for it it's gonna be one of those things where i'm gonna be up front with people like if you're looking for a habano and you're eyeballing this the t52 i think is probably where you want to be but i'd agree i'd agree the uh one thing since we're on the drew estate topic um for those of listeners and viewers who like bourbons they have their peppy van winkle line now i've only imbibed peppy van winkle a few times in my life, I've been blessed to be able to acquire a few glasses here and there. Um, one of the first time I ever did it was actually in Louisville, um, which was a phenomenal experience. It's pronounced uh, Louisville. Okay, Louis. No, it's, it's Louisville. Cox, get in here. Where are you? <laughs> Louisville. Pronounced Louisville. So, so anyway, um, so Drew Estate has their Pappy Van Winkle lines. They have two. Um, they have what's called a red label, which is, I guess they call it their traditional or whatever. And then they have a barrel fermented one, which uh, I haven't looked into what's involved in the fermenting, but it has a, a, a tan brown uh, khaki colored yeah. label. So with the old picture on it, the old right, Pappy with, picture on it. With the old Pappy, the old Pappy picture. Hey, Steve Poole says I said it right. <laughs> and he it's would pronounce Louisville. So anyway, um, I being the, bougie bitch that I am. I went with the more expensive one and uh, I actually, I made sure that I, I couldn't get real pappy. So I did uh, the um, Woodford Reserve Double Oaked, which is one of my all-time favorites. Double Oaked is phenomenal. Um, I paid $24 for that stick and it was trash. Trash. Hey, you know, yeah, and, people and they'll yeah. tell you Drew Estate really dropped the ball with that Pappy line. 100%. They really didn't do that brand any sort of justice or, you know, yeah. it's just I've, because yeah. I too have had it and I was like, because there was an event actually, I think early in the year, maybe last year, where that was like you buy five, you got one free, and that was one of the freebies. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah, I was so, I was very unimpressed. Well, we we sell them for like eighteen bucks, and I'm like, this is why would I get this over over a Liga? Exactly, exactly, and, or even the other Unico stuff for that matter. The Dirty Rat, yeah. Velvet Rat, like why on earth UF13s? Like why the hell would I yes. buy this over any of that? And I was like, this yeah. is it's clearly a name thing. It was, and and here's the thing, just to, and this is what bothered me the most was the. In my local shop, when they had them, the the tan wrapper with the old man on it yep. was like twenty four bucks, and yep. then the traditional one, the red label, was only like thirteen or fourteen. Bucks. I think I had that one too in a smaller size, and that was another one. I was like, "Well, I went back a few weeks later, and I was like, you know what? Let me just try the red label, mm -hmm. the tradition, right?" I completely forgot about the red label, and uh, and you, you do you forget about it because you're 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 disappointed in the other one, you know. So, hold on, I got another jet flying over. Forgive me. And I think we were selling those smaller red label ones for like 21 and change, if I'm not mistaken. And I tried one, or I may not have even tried it at all. I think it might have been one of those ones where I was like, I'm not spending, because it was like yeah. a Corona or something ridiculous. It's like, I'm not spending $20 on a, on a petite Corona. So, not, well, not I went really. back and I tried the red, and it was, uh, it was good. But, again, like you said, I, I'm going to go with a Brazilian Maduro over it every time like it's there's no comparison whatsoever. when you can buy two or three of those brazilian maduras for the same price right. as that other one it's like and i that's the way i am that's the way i explain it to people all the time that see something expensive like an expensive padrone and i'm like i can recommend this to you and you'll like it 
but I also consider myself kind of a blue collar smoker. Like I'm a little bougie. I do like some of the higher end stuff, more the boutique stuff for that matter. Mm-hmm. But it's like, I can sh- like for the same price as this $30 Padron that you're only going to smoke once you can get three of the Romacraft stuff. Yeah. And you're going to freaking love it. Like that's the way I look at it. It's like, would I rather have this really fancy Padron that, yeah, it's going to be good, but am I going to be, and I have buyer's remorse at the end of it where it's like, was that really worth $35? Or yeah. can I have a case of four Aquitaines or Neanderthals or Ligas for that matter? It's, it's just, there's plenty of stuff that's not stupid expensive. That's, that's blows all that really expensive stuff out of the water. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I will say this. Um, I'm sure there's some bourbon aficionados in our group listening. Um, I am not the bourbon guy that I used to be, but, and please someone correct me if this has changed from what I gathered when I was in Louisville and uh, we went to a, a bourbon bar and they had their full menu and they had Pappy, I think it was 12, 18 and 24. And they were varying prices, of course. And I asked the, the bartender, I said, Hey man, the, my first time having Pappy, what do I get? Do I get one of each? Like, what do I do? He says, don't waste your time on the 24 or 22 or whatever it was. He says, mm-hmm. that's a, it's a gimmick. He says, it just tastes like normal bourbon. He says the 18, oh, I remember it was a 15. It was a 15, 18 and 24. He says the, the 18 is where the money's at because the 18 is started in an already used 15 cast. Mm-hmm. So they do a 15 year barrel dump it, start an 18 in it. And that's what I had. And they were, oh, I think it was like $70 a glass. And it mm-hmm. was well worth it. hundred yeah. percent worth it. Just, I mean, just to do it once in your life, it was phenomenal. Uh, yeah. You know? So I don't know. I'm a Woodford guy. I mean, when I do drink, which yeah. is pretty rare now, um, I got some Woodford here at the house. You know, it's, it's hard to beat even just your regular bottle of Woodford, man. It's just, it's just, solid solid bourbon even though they do like they, they claim the whole like dr pepper thing where there's like 24 different flavors or something in it i think the commercial said there's like i saw a commercial for it and they said there's like 50 different notes or something in it, and i'm like eh, give me a break okay 99.9 percent of people are not going to taste almost half of those if that yeah exactly people are gonna be like yep that's bourbon and it's good give me some more yeah, right. Yeah. Huh. But this so, is good. I'm about halfway through it and I'm I'm very much enjoying this. This will, will be on my regular rotation. Did you uh did you burn off yet or no? Not yet. It's getting to that point though. It gets to get a little little bitter. Nice. Man, I wish I could smoke tonight. Oof. <laughs> Bradley says seventy glass, you're out of your mind. Here's the best part, Bill. I had three of them that evening. Jesus. We were in town. We were in town for the That's corn snake money, man. Yeah. And it is, that is definitely corn snake money, brother. Um, we were in Louisville for, uh, the, uh, military show. Uh, my, myself, my employer, and two of my other guys that I used to work with, uh, we all drove up and we bought a table at the, the, the firearm side of the show. It was the show of shows. So you've got, one convention hall that's guns 
and then you have the convention hall like literally 50 feet away that was all military with tanks and trucks and all kinds of equipment and everything and uh we bought a table and vended and just threw a couple things on there and said call this phone number if you want to buy one of them and we just used it as like our base camp and we just went shopping you know and uh when when you get paid to go shopping for fun you might as well have Pepe Van Winkle, right? When in Rome. Yeah. And now everyone's yelling at me. <laughs> this is why the terrorists hate us. So what was the uh, what was one of the things that you wanted to talk about tonight? Well, I, I figured with you being sick and all. Yeah. You know, I know it's it's pretty standard procedure that if you're not feeling well or if there's really shitty weather and the chance of a power outage like not working with venomous so what do you you want my god's honest opinion yeah um people are going to get mad at me for this people are going to say that it's neglect um my animals are well taken care of but i have not been in the venomous room for seven days now they could all be dead i have no idea and because it's not worth the risk so now that I'm feeling a lot better, I'm going to go up there probably tomorrow morning because um, I, I go in I go in the morning and then I'll go in the evening. And then sometimes I'll even go really late at night, like one or two in the morning, um, just to kind of catch stuff at different times of the day. Um, and uh, I'm going to go in there tomorrow morning and just make sure everything's tip top and, and, you know, obviously do water bowls because by now all the water bowls are probably exhausted. Mm-hmm. Um, but now everything in the room except for a cane break and a cotton mouth everything is african the entire room and uh i've i've focused on that just because i'm enamored with african species and the majority of the things up there are very arid um so like all the serastes the, right. there's there's nine serastes up there there is no water bowls those could probably go for a freaking year without water and be fine the, well they, they can go their entire lives and never have seen standing water mm-hmm. you know what i mean they may only drink dew their entire life. Yep. So uh, I, I keep tabs on them. So they actually, I, I, I hydrated them a week, ironically, a week before I got sick. So they're good for months without water. Mm-hmm. Um, the wrinkles, uh, their, their bowls are going to be dry. But again, an arid species, it's getting into the winter time. So they may, they may not be as thirsty. I don't know, but I'm not, I'm not concerned because again, was taking good care of them. And Hey, you oh, I mean, it's, it's no you different than going it. on vacation. Exactly. 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 And, you Is know, there... I think the people that would be complaining about that are the ones that have never and probably will never keep venomous. Yeah, exactly. And that, and that's the whole thing is aside from me, aside from me being immunocompromised simply for having a head cold, um, my reaction time is slower. You know, mm-hmm. I, I may get dizzy. What happens if I get up there and from walking up a flight of stairs, I get dizzy yeah. for whatever reason and I black out with something in or out. You know what I mean? So that's all things that I have to take into consideration and remember that if they get – first of all, a week ain't going to hurt nothing. They're African. Yeah. Let's be real. Um, a week ain't going to hurt nothing. And they're well taken care of, so a week ain't going to hurt nothing. Um, some of the stuff has been two or three weeks without food. doesn't matter because I'm, I'm – still taking care of stuff appropriately. And like you said, it'd be as if I went on vacation, mm-hmm. you know, all the thermostats, the lights, the heat emitters, they're all on timers, you know, that stuff's the same. And, uh, 
the the juice isn't worth the squeeze when you're sick. It's just not. You know, I have a, a very very strict rule that I told myself many many years ago. Uh, a guy that I learned a little bit from. Uh, he was bitten by an eastern diamondback rattlesnake one night, um, and it it almost killed him. Um, and now for the rest of his life, he has a deformed hand. Uh, he still has all his fingers. He, but he can't use his hands. Yeah, it's, lost, it's inoperable. Lost right. mobility with it. Right. Major, major nerve damage from that bite. Um, he wasn't drunk. He, it was because he did it at midnight and he mm -hmm. was tired. So my rule is with the venomous stuff, I do not handle post 10 p.m. unless I already started. So if I start at 9 p.m. and I work till midnight, that's fine. But I'm not going to go up there at 11 and start at 11 because mm -hmm. by that point I'm groggy. Things have already, especially diurnal species have already gone to sleep and now you're waking them up. They're going to be more agitated. All that or nocturnal stuff is just starting its night, mm -hmm. just starting its, its shift, so to speak. So those things play a factor. So, I mean, you can even ask Anna Maria, you know, I, uh, I don't, I don't do venomous stuff post 10 PM unless it's some kind of emergency just because it's not worth it. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's be realistic too. Even with non-venomous stuff, barring legitimate medical emergencies where something has to happen then and there, which right. I mean, how how often does that happen? Yeah, exactly. There's nothing that can't wait until tomorrow. Yep, exactly, exactly. And I know that when I go there tomorrow morning, there's going to be a lot of poop. There's going to be a lot of poop, like copious amounts of poop, and it's going to be smeared everywhere. And you know what? Mm -hmm. I don't care because. They, they smeared it because they want it to smell like them. So as long as they're not living in it for too long, they're fine. Right. You know, and if that, that was, makes, if that makes people uncomfortable, it's, they've never kept a lab. Never. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't, I just, it's just, I thought about it because it wasn't until a handful of years ago that I remember hearing Kristen Wiley talk about how, you know, are you paying attention to the fact that you're working with stuff during thunderstorms where power might randomly go out? Um, working stuff when you're tired, like you were saying, you know, going into your room and, and thinking, am I feeling, am I alert? Am I awake? Am I basically right. in the right headspace to do what I'm about to do and work, you know, do what I need to do? Mm -hmm. And I think I, I'm probably paraphrasing, but... <clears throat> I think she said, if you're not, if you're not hundred percent like yeah, in it, don't do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and like people, people don't realize the volume that she works with. Yeah, You know what I mean? And, and, and that's something that I always tell every fresh venomous intern or apprentice, whatever you want to call it. Someone who is being mentored is it can always wait. Mm-hmm. Because when push comes to shove, as much as we love these animals, as much as we, we, we want these animals to be a part of our lives and we're passionate about it and we care for them, if it is if if it dies over you dying or me dying, like that's not worth it. That that's it's not. You know what I mean? And when you're dealing with the volume that she and Jim are dealing with, oh man so many more animals than I got, you know what I mean? So the thought process crosses their minds, man, I, I wasted too much time doing X, Y, and Z. And now I got to play catch up. You have to be in the right mindset to play catch up mm -hmm. because now you're, you're, you're beating a clock. Even if it's a bullshit clock in your mind, you're still not in the right headspace to be doing what you're doing. 
you know. Uh, I, just, one, I think about like the the freaking level of zen that Jim has to go into daily. Yeah. To do what he does, man, and like yeah. just watching him work, like you can tell. I mean, it's not complacency by any means, but he's just been he's done it so many times for so long that now you can just tell he's just like. Yeah. It's I, and, I don't know how to describe it. Like it's it's. Well, I also say this too is again I would I'll never talk shit about Jim because Jim's a master of what he does, but Jim also has the battle scars, yeah, to show yeah. you how he learned the hard way, mm-hmm. whether it was that no one told him or he got complacent or whatever it was, Jim's got the battle scars and he'll show them to you as a learning tool because, you know, his his sacrifice so to speak is so that we can learn from that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, uh, and I think that, uh, I don't know how long Kristen did, um, did stuff before her and Jim got linked up, but you know how much she learned from him, yeah. whether it be good, good ideas or bad mistakes, whatever it may be, you know? Um, yeah. I don't know how that, to describe it. Like I said, he's just like, when you watch him do it, yeah, you can tell he's, he's comfortable. Right. Not in the complacent way. It's just, it's almost, it's like watching like a, a master violinist or something play like something extremely intricate like you can tell they've put in hours and hours and hours of practicing to be that smooth and that good at what they do you know and watching him him just work things like ekis and and you know bitis and some of the rattlesnakes and stuff they do and i mean you're talking about a guy that's milking you know 100 atrox in a day if not more than that probably more than that yeah yeah and to have a track record that he does as far as like animals handled daily and number of bites i mean it's actually really impressive and clearly you're doing something right if you can work with that many dangerous dangerous animals and and have a fairly minimal number of of bites as a result in ratio to that number yeah and uh, that's something i've always talked about in, in in my classes when i've when i've taught is this is not break dancing this is not a show there's no audience, and if there is, there shouldn't be. I'm sorry, neighbor's dog is going bananas. Um, it it's a it's not breakdancing. It's a ballet. It's a waltz. Mm-hmm. It's smooth, and not to sound like you know Mr. Miyagi or Bruce Lee or whatever, but it's very liquid. It's very fluid, and things need to be smooth because if you're smooth, then the snake or the animal is at ease, and that's the whole goal. The goal is to get the animal out of the enclosure safely and calmly mm-hmm. so that we can do our maintenance, we can enjoy interacting with the animal, and then put the animal back in a calm, relaxed manner. So is a cobra going to hood up? Probably. It's their defense mechanism. That's what they do. But am I disappointed when it doesn't? No. Mm-hmm. Because that means that I was doing my job correctly, and right. I kept that animal at ease, at, at peace, while I was yoinking it out of its enclosure to clean its poop. So uh, one thing I will always say, though, regardless if you're sick or if it's late at night, even if it's in the middle of the day, I always do venomous with a handheld flashlight or torch on me, physically on me, in my back pocket, because how many times have I had a snake on the hook and the power went out, brown out, you know, two in the afternoon on a Tuesday. Or even some jackass and hit a light pull down the block. Exactly. Exactly. And that is a major, major thing that nobody ever thinks about. Mm-hmm. And I keep it in the same pocket. Um, it's in my left back pocket every single time because God forbid something happens and I have to abandon that hook or I can use my left hand and pull that yeah, flashlight out. Yeah, if you're and, right-handed, then it makes sense. Right. You know, and, and 
So again, right-handed hooks in my right hand, snake's tail is in my left, or maybe I have one hook, maybe I have two hooks, whatever mm-hmm. it may be, I can stop what I'm doing, pull the flashlight out, and literally just point the flashlight at the ceiling or the, the torch at the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Because you hitting the ceiling with the light is going to illuminate the room enough for you at least to see the silhouette of the animal. Yeah. And and that can that will save your life. So now here's an interesting question is how much has the tactical training aspect of your job how much of that have you taken and applied it to, to venomous stuff? Um, I would say that situational awareness is obviously key. Uh, we want to have as much situational awareness as humanly possible. However, I think it's completely different um, because when I'm dealing with an animal at hand, I'm focused on that one or those two animals at hand. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I don't have to worry about what's going on behind me per se. While as in a true tactical life situational awareness, your head's always on a swivel. My head doesn't have to be on a swivel if I'm working with one puff adder right in front of me. You know what I mean? Yeah, I just mean in terms of like the muscle memory of like, okay, it's in my lights in my back pocket. Yes, 100%. I'm already prepared to drop whatever's in my left hand and grab that light, you know, and yeah, I mean, obviously you're not going to sit there in your room and practice dropping a hook and grabbing that light as flat as, as quickly as no, possible or anything no. like you would with like a, yeah. you know, a, a tactical reload or something, but, um, right. And that you know, I can just see that aspect. Building that, right. Building that muscle memory. You know, Henry says that flat out, you know, he was working with the CMensis, uh, uh, you know, Chinese spinning Cobra or black and white tie spinning Cobra, whatever you want to call it. And, uh, he had a power outage at, uh, and he had the, the snake, I don't know if he was tailing it and he had the snake, the, the back third in his left hand and the lights went out and all of a sudden now he can feel the weight of the hook. There's no snake on that hook. It's only in his left hand. Mm-hmm. And again, this is an animal that he's worked with for almost a decade now. Right. And that animal honestly knows him and he knows that animal, but he still doesn't want to put the thing around his friggin' neck. Right. So the lights go out. What does he do? He pulls his phone out. And very slowly turns that light on because now you also have to think too is the animal, whether it be nocturnal or diurnal, its pupils are going to dilate. Whether it's a rapid dilation or not is irrelevant. The pupils are going to dilate. And now you're you're immediately turning on a light, which is going to draw its attention to the light. If it's a spitter, it may spit at the light or attack the light or be defensive to the light. And at the same time, now it is going to be able to see you in darkness way better then you can see it. So what's it doing in the meantime? So I don't exactly remember, obviously Henry's alive and nothing happened. It, it worked out perfectly fine because he was working with the snake that he was used to. And I think the snake could care less that the lights turned off. It didn't care. It was going to get fed. But, uh, but th- those are things that need to be thought about and ahead of time is how are you going to negotiate these obstacles mm-hmm. safely? Well, it's what um, we've talked about in the past of, yeah, you have a plan plan A, right. but you want to have a plan B through H. Exactly. Um, another thing that we always do with Venomous is having hooks in strategic places in the room. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be exactly the same in every room. Every room is going to be different. But you, as the handler, need to know where those hooks are. Because if you have to abandon your hook because things got hairy... Well, that's fine. I can literally, just like the flashlight, I can reach behind me and not even look at it, grab the other hook, and now I have a spare hook. 
or I may have a hook under my armpit, or I may have a hook up against the trash can or up against my little wheelie cart that I have, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, it did happen to us with the popcorn black snake. I forgot about that. Yeah, so the one of the venomous rooms underground, uh, there's no windows. So when the power goes out, it's dark. You're out. Yeah. And uh, and I, I can't remember if it was me taking out the pop one, or Hen- I think it was Henry because I pulled out the flashlight and I did exactly what I talked about. You just hit the ceiling, and you've illuminated the room. And now Henry's process of coming out of the vision cage and into a retaining trash can. Well, Henry just allowed the animal to see its cage, and through its own repetition, its own muscle memory, it knew to just go back into its cage. Mm-hmm. So again, crisis averted. But uh, but yeah, it, it's it's building the muscle memory of yeah, it's Henry was. Uh, it's building the muscle memory of where is the torch in your pocket? Where is your other snake hooks? Where is your trash can that you're or your retaining vessel? You know uh, what other. Uh, things are in your surrounding area is there a bag of garbage on the floor is there a buck a buck a five gallon bucket with for garbage next to you are you going to kick anything is there anything behind you uh you know most of the doors that we talk about they open in well now is there anything blocking the door that you Mm -hmm. can't see so these things in terms of the the tacticalness of the situational awareness of it that plays a factor but it's all different per the individual, different per the room, different per the animal. So, yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of, a lot of variation just in terms of personal level of level of comfort. So like for me, even when I was just, when I had my Aatrox and I was just cleaning that, like, yeah, to a lot of guys in Venomous, like, Oh, it's an Aatrox, whatever. But for me, it was like (laughs) my phone, I put on silent. So it didn't buzz in my pocket or anything. Yeah. And it's, it was also sort of remembering, like expecting it a to sort of spaz out and do what a trucks do. Right. But then it was also knowing, okay, if, for, if that does happen, like there's no rush to get it back in the cage, like let it, you know, if she wants to come out, yeah. let her kind of do her thing. Don't be in a hurry. Like, Oh snap. She's coming off the table. Like quick, get the hooks and fling her back in or something like that. You know, it yeah. was like, this is, this is what's likely to happen. And it's the same with, with, I guess, the Jansen Eye, and yeah, those weren't venomous, but still, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, if you really take your time and you're you're slow and you're gentle, it makes a much more pleasant experience and easier right. experience I, of getting I'm, him back in the cage. And so for me, it was making sure, it was knowing, like, let it do what it's going to do. You know, yeah, it's, it's probably going to come out. Like, yeah, she's probably going to spaz, she's probably going to go all over the place, but there's no rush to... to stop that from happening or anything like that. If that makes any sense, it's really hard to, to explain, but no, and that, and that it does make sense. And I, I'm following you hundred percent to be, to me, having the Gonyasoma launch past me, so to speak, is more scary than the Aatrox because the rattlesnake is going to either try and find a hiding place or it's going to stay and defend itself. Well, as the Gonyosoma, it's gone. Like, it's out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And now I have to chase that thing down before it gets behind a TV or gets up in a wall or goes in the back of a closet. And well, as with the Western Diamondback, the odds of that happening are very, very slim. They're mm-hmm. not a high-speed snake by any means. They are extremely fast in their strike, and they can move when they want to, but the difference is, is they're polar opposites. You know what I mean? So, like, to mm-hmm. me, I can have that relaxed think of oh crap rattlesnakes on the floor all right 
let's keep going, mm-hmm. opposed to, holy crap, God, your son was on the floor. I got to catch this thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. That happened a couple weeks ago. Jake was over and I was showing it to him. And I think the mail, um, I think, yeah, the mail, it was on the on what's the bottom cage now. Um, I opened the door because I was showing him the female and I was like s- sitting on my knees and mail came right out and darted right between my legs. Didn't even see it. Yeah. I just saw the and tail and then and Jake was standing right behind me and grabbed it, but it was like so fast. It was <laughs> all I, I looked down. I just, all I saw was like a little bit of tail, just that black tail, just whoop, right between my legs. Yeah. And what's funny is you said you were sitting on your knees. So you were kneeling on the floor and your butt was on the heel of your shoes. Uh, yeah. Okay. So when we do venomous stuff, if you're going to kneel, the animal's not coming out. Mm-hmm. And if you have to kneel for whatever reason, whether it be an emergency or because for whatever reason you have to take a knee, you're going to take one knee, not two. And you're never going to place your weight backwards. You're going to put your weight forwards. So that if I have to spring up, if I have to launch mm-hmm. myself up, I can. Obviously, it doesn't matter with the, with the chance and I because, you know, they're, they're harmless. You're, you're, you're six inches away. It's not that big a deal. But like in terms of venomous keeping and venomous handling there is no kneeling with an animal unless you absolutely have to and if you do have to it's only one knee you can squat down but if you do squat down you better stay on the balls of your feet and Mm -hmm. not on your heels because if something comes at you and you're on your heels what are you going to do you're going to fall backwards and now you're now you're you've fallen over you're helpless at that point there's no there's no uh uh what's the word there's no uh, nimbleness to it yeah yeah. Regardless of how chubby you like myself, you may be. Yeah, and that's uh, that's something I carried over to to stuff like the Ganyasomas. Like, look, it's probably going to freak out. It's probably going to come out, and it's like just let it. Because yeah. now that the room's sealed off, I don't. It's not going to go anywhere. It's stuck in that room. You know, it's right. not. But still, get but you don't want to. You don't want it to. Again, you're not just going to let it go where it wants to go because you have you know wires behind the racks and timers and whatever else. So you don't want it to. To, to go but if, it, if it does, but if it I'm not did, gonna, you're not going to pounce on it and try and stop it from, you know, taking off. It's like, just right. take it slow, take your time, let them. Yeah. And that's what I learned with that Aatrox fairly quickly too, was, was knowing that when I opened up the slider on that, that Neodisha cage that it was in, um, yeah, she's going to freak out. She's going to do a couple laps around it, and then she's going to park herself right in the middle of it or off to the side a little bit and just wait for me to come in. So it would be a thing where it's like I knew she was going to do that, and so I'd, I'd go in, I'd take the hideout with the hook or whatever, uh, and either then she would freak out or if I if I went to go hook her, as soon as that hook touched her, she'd do that. And so it was like I'd close it back, let her do her thing, and then pull her out and put her in the bucket. and it, uh, It's just... Like we get this this weird I don't know if it's like an anxiety thing or what, but it's one of these things where like, oh shit, it's out, like quick, stop it, do whatever you gotta do to keep it from going two right. feet to the left or whatever. And that's I think that's how that's how accidents happen and people get bit. Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. You know? And uh I realize now that I've been doing this as long as I've been doing it, and there are certain species that are just not appealing to me because I had my enjoyment with them and I had the, the privilege to work with such a wide variety of species over the years. 
that now I kind of really know what I want and what I want to focus on. And uh, like, for example, like Mambas are not my thing. I've had right. Mambas. I'm, I'm done with it. Um, could I still handle them? Of course. Do I want to? Eh, not really. Um, uh, Anna Maria showed a, a, a very keen interest in boom slangs. She has a, a thing for snakes with giant eyeballs, hence the subox. Um, so I, I put some feelers out because I, I kind of want to get back into booms, but I am going to keep them very different from what I used to because the way that I used to have them, there was no room for error. Yeah. And with an animal that is super graceful and super relaxed and literally the, the leaf, it is the leaves on the tree, very graceful. But then all of a sudden it says, you know what? No. I'm done and I don't want to play whammo, high speed. <laughs> and right. And, and like, for example, I had the last one I had was on display at Underground's retail store and they had vaulted ceilings with the, uh, the rafters exposed and like the, the uh, air duct exposed, very industrial looking. Right. All I could think of was if that thing got loose in the rafters, I'm just going to shoot a shotgun. Because no, seriously, because the the odds of me being able to get up there safely and grab that animal before it could get into a wall or exit the store in some regard, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. So now uh, I have I have a plan in my head of how I want to do it. I kind of want to get babies, kind of raise them up. I think that could be fun. But there are certain species that, that for me, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. So. But again, now I'm focusing on mostly African stuff um, and some Middle Eastern stuff too. Uh, I'm going to try and get my hands on some pseudocerastes. So fingers crossed that I can get them in the near future. Um, I'm really, really enjoying the cerastes cerastes right now. Uh, they're doing phenomenal and everything is eating and it is pooping and it is shedding they are shedding so i figure once we get between marcus and i all the all the, all the specimens that we acquired recently um we're going to go through see what's what uh pick and choose our, our choice pairs for selective breeding and uh, and kind of go from there i think of all of them we only need i think four or five more to shed for their first time for us um they're all wild caught so uh, we'll see what happens in the near future. And I'm, I'm really excited. I really want to try and get some pseudocerastes. So that's, that's next on the list. Billy Jenkins wants to know how is keeping a timber? Uh, I don't keep timbers. I keep cane breaks. There is a difference. I don't care what people say. Atricodatus. Yep. Um, timbers, in my opinion, are way more reserved. Uh, they are less... Uh, edgy if that makes any sense to me um cane breaks are way more defensive and they will let you know that they are what they are um i feel like cane breaks are also more intimidating to me uh simply because their toxicity is gravely different um people get bit and don't make it to the ambulance just because certain localities of, of timber or of uh, cane breaks, excuse me, uh, have a high uh, neurotoxicity. People don't realize it. They think, oh, I got bit by a rattlesnake. I have a couple of hours to figure out what I'm going to do. And, you know, 
the ambulance is eight minutes away and at the six minute mark they're dead at the kitchen table so obviously people react differently but uh but when it comes down to brass tacks in terms of keeping cane brakes and timbers i think they're one of the more pleasurable rattlesnakes to keep because you can set them up in a more aesthetically pleasing environment they love leaf litter uh they don't mind the cold you know at all so as long as it's not lethal levels of cold, it, if your power goes out for a couple of days in winter and it gets in the 40s, eh, it got in the 40s, whatever. They'll live through it. Um, and they love rodents, so it's easy peasy. I think timbers and, and cane brakes, for that matter, like seriously underrated in terms of the like, danger factor, like with bites. Yeah, under 100%. And, it, to, and like there's the whole quintessential Americana between the you know the timber complex and you know the Gadsden flag and you know don't tread on me and, and this this American you know it is the rattlesnake of the Americas you know um, but I would have loved to have been able to have some of the barrier island species and the coastal timbers you know of yesteryear before they were all extirpated um, because I think I, I really would love to see if there's a difference in personality, a difference in toxicity, a difference in husbandry. You know, uh, let's face it, there are no more timbers on the Jersey Shore. Let's be real. Mm-hmm. But if I could have a time machine and go back a hundred years and try and catch one, I, I that would be phenomenal. That'd be amazing. You just to see one. I, I remember the like the bite reports on the Southeastern Hot Herb Society page of some of those oh, timber yeah. bites. Man, holy crap! Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nasty bites. And you imagine this. Imagine being one of the pioneers of our country um, and showing up on the shores of the Americas uh, after this multi-month boat ride with horrible conditions. And you show up and there are snakes on the beach and they rattle their tail. Someone had to be the first one to find out they were bad news. Yeah, 100%. I think about that a lot. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, there were indigenous people living here way before, you know, pioneers showed up, but. It's literally like going to another planet. Yeah. Like, you might as well have just gone to the moon. Yeah. Snake jazz. Because I think about that, even with, like, coral snakes. Think about the first guy that saw a coral snake and was like, wow, that's cool. I'm going to pick it up. And then got bitten 12 hours later, was dead. Yeah. Yeah. And supposedly, did you know this? But apparently, the first official death of the Civil War was caused by a coral snake. Really? Mm-hmm. Where, where and when? I mean, uh, obviously, 1861, but... <laughs> somewhere, I don't know if it was in South Carolina somewhere, if it was down somewhere somewhere further south, but... Um, yeah, that's I've I've read and heard that a couple times that the first official death of the Civil War was from a coral snake bite, and I can only imagine it was probably from one of the Yankee soldiers came down and saw it and picked it up and yeah got whacked and shrugged it off because it probably didn't feel like anything and yeah all that neurotoxin. Then later they were like, "Hey, why is this dude dead? He just stopped I gotta, reading." I gotta look that up because I'm kind of a Civil War buff and uh, and I, I definitely gotta look that up. I think one of the, my favorite Civil War stories has nothing to do with snakes is. Uh, I can't, damn, for the life of me, I can't remember the gentleman, the family's last name, but there was a house, a farmhouse outside of, I want to say outside of Richmond, where the first, I think it was the actual first shots fired 
of the American Civil War. And then five years later, they happenstance to be where, uh, when Robert E. Lee surrendered, it was the same house. They used his parlor to sign the surrender documents to end the war. So the war started in his backyard and ended in his front parlor. I always thought that story was pretty amazing. You see, I'm sending you a link right now, actually, on from Google that talks about this very bite. I'm going to send it to you on nice. text, text message. Okay. Might be something interesting to read with your sultry voice. <laughs> no, I don't know how sultry it is right now. I'm a little nasally. May 31st, 1861. Augusta's first Civil War casualty. Alright, hold on. The AugustaChronicle.com Bear with me, children. And it was actually, it says it was a Confederate soldier, which is interesting. Okay, man, there are so many pop-ups, jeez. Uh, this date in regional history, May 31st, 1861, Augusta's first casualty of the war between the states involved Confederate Private H.H. Parkrin on duty in Pensacola, Florida, who died on this date after being bitten by a snake. The story got better a century later on when the Augusta Chronicle offered a more detailed account during Master's Week 1961. That was when the remains of the suspected serpent supposedly survived a fire at the Augusta Museum. Forgive me, my neighbors are causing a ruckus. I don't know if you guys can hear that. Um, calling it the most famous snake in the South, the newspaper identified it as a coral snake, but had struck Parkland... Uh, a burglar in the clinch rifles, or a yeah, a bugler in the clinch rifles. Bugler. Bugler. Is it a bugler? I think so. Bugler? That's spelled stupid. All right. In the clinch rifles. When he tried to charm it, uh, Captain Platt was said to have killed it, placed it in a whiskey jug, and sent it back to Augusta. It went up on the shelves of the Plum and Letner Drugstore and was then moved to the museum where in April 1961, fire threatened it. The fire's heat broke its jar, the Chronicle reported. The snake tumbled into an Indian pottery exhibit. Fireman's hose filled the pot with water, and the flames around it never scorched a scale. The artifact no longer seems to exist. That's interesting. How cool would it be to have that on your, your bookshelf? That would be pretty amazing. Forgive me for my horrible narration. Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting story. Very interesting. I just thought that was always a cool little fact. Yeah, man. The the American Civil War has always fascinated me for for a multitude of reasons, and whether it be just general history or you know how humans lived back then, but you think about all the luxuries we have today, all the luxuries we had a hundred years ago, let alone 200 years ago. It's just amazing. Or lack yeah. thereof. Lack thereof. Yeah. Advancements in technology. Yeah. I think about that down here a lot too, like the hurricanes and stuff, like the native Americans and the you know colonists and stuff. Like what the hell did you do when a hurricane just showed up? Yeah. Where did you go? You just you had didn't. to 
you just you had to you didn't know hunker down and just ride it out no matter how bad it got yeah think about this we, you know we know that the hurricane's coming and we can ex- okay now it's starting it's a couple yeah. hours in okay we can we're watching it on tv we got about four hours left or whatever these people didn't know it was coming they just thought it was a normal storm our species has become so soft uh, yeah yeah technology has strengthened us and crippled us at the same time because it's like if it was all gone tomorrow what the hell would people do yeah right yeah i mean i like i look at a lot of that technology from back then in terms of like machinery and there was very minimal screws you know or fasteners everything was fit together everything was welded even if it wasn't welded, it was it was it was it was machined so precise that things fit together and didn't need screws or fasteners. And you just don't see that today. You know, here's another news story that just popped up on my suggested stories. World's most dangerous bird raised by humans. 18,000 years ago. Study suggests really (sighs) says the earliest bird reared by humans may have been a cassowary. Um, Territorial, aggressive, and often compared to a dinosaur in looks, the bird is a surprising candidate for domestication. However, a new study of more than 1,000 fossilized eggshell fragments excavated from two rock shelters used by hunter-gatherers in New Guinea has suggested early humans may have collected the eggs of the large flightless bird before they hatched and then raised the chicks to adulthood. Imagine being one of those guys, and now you have to like, fight off cassowaries with a freaking stick. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man! No, thank you, dude. I was with Matt and Jamie when we raided the the nest to get those eggs, and we had a riot shield, and that wasn't even enough. You know, imagine a stick. <laughs> Says the research researcher said that while a cassowary can be aggressive, and then it gives you the story of the guy in Florida that got killed by one in 2019. Uh, it imprints easily; it becomes attached to the first thing it sees after hatching. This means it's easy to maintain and raise up to adult size. Humans are believed to have first domesticated chickens no earlier than 9,500 years ago. So, I don't know if I want to test the whole imprinting thing on a cassowary, but. Well, this is probably going to be very loud. So, forgive me if it is, but here is a single waddle cassowary that was not pleased with us standing there. Dude, if I, I know we've talked about this and that, that video in particular before, but if I was in the forests of Australia or New Guinea and I started hearing that, my ass would be up a tree or running the opposite direction as fast as possible. Yeah. Imagine multiple of them all doing that around you. Oof. Oof. They're so cool, but they're so terrifying at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And then you see the videos of the dudes in Australia, like seeing them in the, you know, when they're out walking around looking for snakes or something. And they're just like, yeah, it's cast. We're like, it's a freaking Turkey or something. 
Well, yeah, and it's, you're right. It's it, like my friend Elliot in Queensland, you know, he does ecological surveys every single day. That's what he does for a living. And he sends me cats videos all the time. And, it, and he'll say stupid stuff to the bird because the bird just doesn't care because it knows how badass it is. And he'll be like, hey, what's up, pretty girl? How are you doing today? And like trying to sweet talk it. And it's only 15, 20 feet away from him because he's walking through the woods looking for stuff. And it just happened to be there. So it's not going to walk away. It knows how badass it is. So as long as he doesn't engage it, it's going to pay him no mind because it knows it's the top dog in the area. And yes, Billy Jenkins, it is. Billy Jenkins says it's too hard not to make the clever girl joke. 100%. 100%. Freaking murder turkeys, dude. Murder turkeys for life. I don't. I have a hard time believing that it would just be like, yeah, whatever, man, do your thing. Let me see if I have me. It seems like it would be one of those things where if it really noticed you and you kind of didn't get the hell out of there within a certain time frame, like within less than a minute that you'd kind of be in some, in some trouble. Yeah. Those things aren't slow either. Like when they want to move. No, not at all. They move. Oh yeah. How, how tall are those things? Like what? Five feet plus six feet. Uh, they're, they're the five and change. I mean, nothing too crazy, but they can jump standing still. They can jump. They can clear six foot at the bottom of their feet when they jump in the air. And the farm that we have by us that breeds them, their fences are only six foot. So at any point, the bird could jump over the fence. If they figured out that it could. Well, the birds are not stressed. There's no reason for them to jump. The only time that they jump like that is when they're spooked. So when uh, the when the keepers are walking in between, you know, the alley, the alleyways in between the paddocks and stuff, they're very very calm. There's no running. You know, you don't walk briskly. You know, it's very heel toe heel toe, very relaxed. Because if you did spook it and it jumped, oh, now you got a hell of a catch on your hands. So. Hen dog said, according to Somerville in the wild, they aren't that bad. But yeah, I'm trying to find. Let me see if I have. I guess there's a very big difference between a cassowary in a cage and a cassowary in in the open. Yeah. Free range cassowaries. Right. Let me see if I have a video from Elliot. He just sent me one recently, um, not not too long ago, of him just walking through the woods, and there just happened to be one standing there. Imagine seeing one of those damn things in your backyard, dude. Oof. It would be pretty awesome, though. I mean, it would be, but I'd also be kind of scared for my child. Or If Archie was out there, Archie would freak out. Archie wouldn't know what to do. (laughs) Yeah, I don't have it. Oh, well. Next time. I'll save it next time. I wonder if there's a statistic for how many people get killed by cassowaries over there. Probably not that much, man. It's, I mean, yeah, not a lot, but it's still got to happen. Yeah. I imagine it's a lot less than crocodiles. I don't know. Because, I mean, they're, they're federally protected uh, because their jungle is, I guess, becoming less and less. At least I know the New Guinea ones are. Something we'll have to look into. 
looking up their range. Yeah, so the Australian ones, they're just on like the Cape York. Like the east side, east coast of the Cape York and small sort of little sections. Papua New Guinea, like half that whole country on the southern southern half is like covered in them. Okay. Southern cassowary. Yeah. Like there's a picture of one on a damn beach and there's a dude just standing and staring at the water with his back to it. <laughs> what the fuck? Crazy. I just, I'm a, man, just obsessed with them. I just, I don't know what it is. There's like this mystery to them that I just find fascinating. It's, it's the dinosaur lover of your childhood. You know, it's a, a real life velociraptor. It's bigger. It's taller than a velociraptor. Everyone thinks the Jurassic Park ones are real. The velociraptors are only like three feet tall. Crazy. They attack up to 200 people every year. Although yeah, they, there are they, hundreds of attacks every year, though the last recorded death caused by cassowary was 1926. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Nuts. Nuts. You said it, sir. Oh, all this Nerodia talk in the group chat. I have no desire to keep Nerodia. I don't know about you. None whatsoever. And here's my problem. I've been specifically looking for Hendry County, Glades County, Palm Beach County, banded Nerodia, because I know all of our freak friends are going to go gaga over them. And I will happily give them to our friends. But I, I honestly, I kind of don't want to find them because that means I got to friggin' take <laughs> care of them. <laughs> I got to take care of them until I can ship them out. <laughs> you know, man, uh, Jake got those four babies the other, like last week, and I don't know if you listened to that episode. Of THB we were talking about in the beginning, but dude, that those things smelled horrible. Like I literally yeah. thought like at least one was dead in that box from the smell. All four were alive, and I was like, oh my god. Well. Not to sound like a, a, a snooty or an elitist, but I've gotten to the point now where Anna Marie and I will be driving through the glades and we'll have the windows down and I'll smell Nerodia musk and I'll stop the car and like I'll look out the windows in the grass. Like I never find anything, but I know that that's what that smell is. And like it's a good feeling to know, like at least I know they're there. You know what I mean? Even if I don't find them, I can I legit can smell them. So, well, I'll say okay. So we have bandits here that are really pretty. I will say that, like the, yeah. the bandits we have here are incredible. Really nice, deep crimson, red bands, almost blood red in some of them. And I like salt marsh snakes, like the Clark Eye are the, really the only Nerodia that I really would go out of my way to keep, just because I've heard they're kind of like the anti Nerodia and that they're not little assholes. Yeah, and they stay smaller, and they're silver ones, which I think is really cool. Um, but other than that, like Jake's all about them, and I'm like, dude, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. You know, I don't get it, the appeal. It doesn't. They don't. It's fun to find them sometimes. And I, I know, like Doc, Lof- just, Doc Lofman's going crazy on them. He's loving them. You know, 
Yeah, and, well, that's where these came from. Was him? Uh, okay. He sent Jake some of the babies, and I was like, dude, these things smell horrible. And, and here's my thing: if you're gonna do like, I I always dreamed, and Florida Fish and Wildlife shut me down horribly, which was super sad. But I've always dreamed about having a very large, you know, hundred gallon, two hundred gallon natural Everglades vivarium in my house, and I wanted to have, uh, you know, banded water, Florida water cotton mouth and have like you know actual water with lily pads and you know throw some leopard frogs in there and see how long they last mm -hmm. you know and uh, some alligator gar too and like stuff that could live together but do the snakes the aquatic snake species and uh the state said no because of the cotton mouth and everything else which makes no sense because i can literally find my backyard but i can't put it in my living room crazy bureaucrat bullshit but anyway um but i just I, I don't want to deal with the fish feeding. You know what I mean? I don't even know if that's necessarily much that, of a problem outside of babies, but no, because I just, I, I know that I would get stuck feeding fish and having to cut up fish. And it's like, I don't do anything with fish anymore. And that's what killed it for me. That and the fact that they, poop on you every time they look at you mm -hmm. uh, and miguel said uh, he's the same way with garter snakes and that's another one that like yeah they're cool and all but that's another one where my experiences with them at least finding them is just always so unpleasant that i'm like why would i ever want to keep these things yeah and don't get me wrong finding one in the wild is awesome man i will photograph the crap out of it i'll play with it i'll get must on but i'm not gonna take it home i'm not you know. The ones Gendra got at Daytona were cool, you know, those nice That's blues. Cool. But I'm like, oh, yeah. I just, I, I don't know. That's another one that like, those in Nerodia to me go hand in hand. It's like, I have, I have, they, they don't appeal to me. Yeah. You know, to each their own. They don't do it. And maybe it's just that same sort of thing where they're just like nasty, bitey, musky. Yeah, but at the same time, people say the same thing probably about us liking rat snakes. You know what I mean? People probably say the same exact thing. You know? But I, I dude, I don't care. I'll get don't, I don't think they even compare. Like, rat snake musk and Nerodia is yeah, that's true. two very different musks. That, that is true. I think it also comes down to what they're eating. You know? Yeah. Nerodia is going to poop out frog and fish. Well, as a rat snake, is a high probability of being a rodent and not being as uh, harsh to the nasal. I don't know. Jake getting mussed by that big yellow at Daytona was pretty. Was pretty rough. Mm. Yeah, Maybe I missed it, that. It was different because I was sharing a small space with him, and it was like, dude, shower, yeah. get it off you. <laughs> well, I was kind of I was shocked that he didn't like do that more controlled. Like, yeah, well, first, he was expecting. No, but like, here's the thing it's a large rat snake. You know, it's probably a male just by looking at the tail, right? Why did he not leave the whole body in the bag? Just take it, the, it came out. Yep, yeah, we'll put it back in, right? And then just have the tail coming out the bag, you know, hold the bag around the tail, point that vent away from you, let somebody probe whoever's going to do the probing that way god forbid anything shoots out of there it's pointed away from you you know and then as soon as you're done just loosen your grip and the tail slides back in the bag I, this, that was 
the first encounter was when it must him really good and that was when he he went to go open it up to look at it initially like he hadn't seen it other than pictures uh, okay okay and i think when he opened it up it was already sort of at the top and it just kind of came out and you know how like you put rat snakes in a bag especially yellows and they like stiff up yeah and, and they, they do that thing where they, yeah yeah and it just makes it more of a pain because you can't like they 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 go into stick mode and like even when yeah. they're coming out of the bag they're still stiff and like they're coming and it just i i don't know i just he wasn't expecting it and i think at that point it was out and it was on and getting it back in the bag was trickier and it's he started smelling horrible and then it was like nobody wanted to help him get it back in the bag because <laughs> of the smell yeah yeah <laughs> i mean the damn thing's probably as as long as he is tall which i mean it's it's not not huge but I just yeah. I don't think he was he was he wasn't ready. No, he, and yeah, none of us were ready. Yeah, famous last words. Oh man! So did you uh, burn off that cigar yet or no? Oh yeah, it's done. I'm already yeah. on oh. to Neanderthal. Oh okay, never mind. Well, what was the final notes? It was very final. good. Okay. Uh, the notes that the website gave seem pretty accurate. Cashew was definitely there. Some molasses, a little bit of spice. It's tasty. Good. Something unique. Definitely smoke it again. Good. Awesome. Awesome. Did I tell you that my Siberian female Dion's died? Uh, I heard it through the grapevine. My condolences. Not entirely sure what happened. I have my theories. So I fed her. It was, I think, a Sunday or a Monday. And it was a fairly large mouse. Like, I, I was giving it to her, and I was like, eh, it's a little, little big. And so I, I, and after this, it has me thinking more that, like, with species like that that are more temperate, smaller meals are definitely the way to go because oh, they're, yeah. they're not, they don't have the, they're not getting the heat to, to process bigger meals like that, like metabolically, right? Right, right. So I gave her that bigger meal. I think I went back and checked because I'll go through and check everybody to make sure they ate. Uh, I think I came back maybe Wednesday or Thursday and she had, she had regurged it. And she seemed fine then. Like she was still moving. She's still alive. No problem. And then I, the next morning... I went and I saw her sort of laying. She wasn't laying weird or anything like that, but usually they're pretty mobile. When I come in the room, you know, I see their head moving around. They're looking. So I opened the tub and she didn't move. And so I kind of like poked her, nothing. And she, there was like blood that had been coming out of her mouth that was in the substrate. Right. And I could see some blood that like was on her mouth. And so I'm thinking. That maybe as she regurged that or something, it had caused some damage and maybe it caused some sort of bleed, like be the, right. the nails or claws or whatever on the mice, um, or even the teeth I mean, for that matter. I don't know, but where it did didn't she come seem, from again? She was that's a Siberian animal. But I'm saying but it was it was a wild caught animal that was long no, captive. I don't think so. No, I think okay, it was it, it was imported from Europe a, a while ago, and I. I had mentioned it to Lofman and he said, because that was originally one of his snakes, and he was he was like he told me he's like, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't beat yourself up over it too much. He he thought that that animal was actually pretty old, so it may have just been her time, and maybe that regurge was just sort of the catalyst for 
expediting yeah. that. I don't know, but yeah, I mean, it could. You, you have, you, there's there's almost no way of knowing. I mean, it could have been a cancer of some kind from old age. It could have been a parasite in the GI that just ate her up. You know, and to be honest, when I see blood, uh, a few things, especially oral blood, a few things come to mind. But you would have seen if it was something nasty you would have a hundred percent seen it in other colubrids. Yeah. And I mean, that was my first, first yeah. thought was, oh shit, it's crypto or something. Yeah. Um, and you would but, have seen other things start to regurgitate whatever else. Well, she would have, there would have been some pretty serious distension in like the stomach, um, yeah. like some swelling and stuff like that. That's pretty common with crypto. Uh, Did you necropsy or no? No, I, I didn't. And yeah. I just, um, like I, I said, I think it was, it was maybe that, just you know? a, maybe it was just a, like I said, a, some sort of internal injury from regurging because it was a big meal. Yeah. Um, coupled with the old age thing. I don't know, but I don't know. Cause I, I had, I, there was a, like one of the bears, uh, smaller bears regurged. And so I was like, ah, oh, shit, it's happening. But I think that was just, I also gave, I gave her like two fuzzies and that was probably too much. Um, I don't know. That just, I'm, I don't. Yeah. It, it, I hate saying it happens, but again, you, not knowing how old the animal is, mm -hmm. not, not being able to check for cancers and that kind of thing, you know, who knows? So it's, it sucks. Uh, I don't know if I told you this, but the, uh, the male subak passed away. No, you didn't. Yeah, so the male subak passed away, and it turns out that it was a female. I uh, I probed they it. They were both females? They're both females. Oh, shit. So I had two girls, um, and I, again, thought that there might be something to foul play, but the rack that he or she was in um, is all colubrids, and they all went through quarantine at very, very similar times, so... Mm -hmm there would have been cross-contamination and the other subak would have a hundred percent contracted whatever was there. So I'm not concerned in that regard, but I'm, I really am a firm believer in that when I had the, the uh, thermostat spike, which caused the initial regurgitation a hundred percent and it just never recouped. And finally, when it was keeping food down, it was too late. It was too far too late. Yeah. So regurgitation, man, that does a, that does a number on them on any, any snake for that matter. I mean, you're, that's why anytime I have that happen personally, my, my sort of SOP for that is don't feed it for a minimum of two weeks. And then when I do, it starts out on a pinky as if it were a newborn out of the egg Yeah. and slowly build that gut, you know, that gut flora and stuff back up and, and get it yeah. back on track. Cause I mean, you're it just, it, for whatever reason, it does a serious number on their system. It's really, yeah. really bad, but I feel like especially colubrids. Yeah, I yeah. really do. I feel like python species, boa species, uh, maybe boas not as much, but I feel like it definitely pythons and a lot of the venomous stuff too. Is I don't know if they produce you know gut bacteria at a faster rate, or you know maybe certain species, uh, especially with a lot of venomous, uh, they use regurgitation as a defense mechanism. So maybe their body is catered to it a little better. Um, again, this is just my personal observation, uh, but I know with colubrids, it, it really puts a hurting on them. 
Oh, uh, the way I mean, the way I look at that is if you look at pythons, you're looking at an animal that's used to eating fewer, but l- probably larger meals. Yeah. And then with venomous, you're looking at animals that are pre-digesting things with venoms. Yeah. Rat snakes, you're looking at something that's higher metabolism, probably eating more meals that are slightly smaller. Yeah. Uh, well, so- it's like that Palm Beach County corn I got, and it threw up four annuls. It didn't. It didn't even look like it was big enough to eat one and all, and it threw up four of them. So, yeah. And Chris had talked about. I think he used some stuff called Nutrabac. Mm-hmm. I know I've I've heard of it, but I need to look it up. And I know Matt Most sent me a uh, a brand of probiotic that he uses from uh, I believe Tractor Supply Co. And it's intended for livestock. And mm-hmm. uh, I'll, I'll have to get with him and get the dilution. Uh, and basically he was just, you know, pumping the prey item full of that. Um, and that seemed to work out really well for him. So I think for the, for the future, I'm definitely going to try that. Mm-hmm. God forbid, uh, hopefully it doesn't happen again. Um, and Henry says that his friends in China, they do, uh, they give their baby snakes probiotics as well. So. Cause I, now that I think about it, I don't know that I've ever had a chondro regurge. Knock on wood. Like I've I've had it happen with rat snakes, but I've never never had it happen with brettles or carpets or chondros. Yeah. So I, that's that's the only thing I can think of that would that would make sense is just that higher metabolism and them, you know. Yeah, corn snakes can take huge meals. Most rat snakes can take huge meals, but it's one of those things where they're they're probably built to run on smaller, more frequent. Yeah. So now I'm going to start, I'm, I'm definitely going to scale back like as far as feeding the, the other Dion's, the pair that I have left and the baby, um, you know, feeding them probably what I, what I would normally feed a corn snake of that same size, the next size down. Sure. Sure. I actually, uh, you know, I've had, I've had adult and baby wrinkles throw up and, uh, it was purely from the size of the prey item. Um, and, like adults that I got as adults, wild caught adults, and mm-hmm. uh, and they could take a, a medium rat if they wanted to, but I give them a small. And let's say I did all ten of my animals, right? Half of them threw up, and then the other half they pooped out, like just fur and skin. Like half of an animal. <laughs> yeah, and, and basically, and, and that's what I determined is that you have an animal that, yes, it is a rodent eater by nature, but the majority of its prey items are going to be lizards, snakes, and frogs. And they're not designed to ingest that much fur because, let's face it, if they do get a rodent in the wild, it's not going to be a rodent it's every week. probably a baby at that. Yeah. Like a it, smaller, right. hairless something. You know? Yeah, exactly. Um and that and and what I wound up doing is I wound up just now on my adults. Um, I honestly, I give them a wrap up, and it seems to be keeping them at a good body weight and good you know metabolism time frame, like a wrap up a week. And uh, I'm really going to do frog legs uh, as a, a, a secondary form. I just got to mm-hmm. get my ass in here. I'm, I'm really low on food. I, I was talking to Billy about this yesterday or day before how I, I need to the freezer's getting thinned out and Maria was awesome and she bought me my first ever chest freezer uh, for my birthday and uh, I filled that thing up and now it's it's getting low again so I think I'm gonna definitely hit the the the, the smaller markets and try and get some frog legs and try and go about it that way you think the rinks would eat quail eggs 
Uh, I don't know. I mean, I thought about maybe trying it, but at the same time, there, I have everything's on paper right now, just because I've been a, a lazy, a lazy guy. But um, I feel like they would smush it and just make a mess because they're so I active during I'd the day. I put them in a deli cup and let them figure it out. You you put the snake in a deli cup with the egg? No, I put the eggs in a deli cup without a lid and just put it in the. Like with the the cyanian and some of the rat snakes, I just put them in a deli cup and leave them in there, and they they make it happen. Oh, okay, all right, okay. I don't know. Well, speaking of rinks, just because I'm a rinkaholic, um, I saw this today, and uh, I figured if we had time, I was going to try and share it. So there is a lot of misconceptions with spinning cobras. Uh, especially with with uh, wrinkles, um, uh, misconceptions like cobras can only strike the length of their hood when they're standing up. That is hundred percent a fallacy. I've never uh, even heard that, and that sounds like bullshit. Yeah. So if so, if the cobra is standing up like this, it can only strike that far. They can only strike down, or they can only strike to the side. That's all bullshit. They can they can strike. No different than any other snake. I have seen Egyptian cobras do backflips and strike backwards. Um, I've seen them do death rolls like midair because the target that they were following moved and they had to like contort their body to do it. Um, but one of the biggest fallacies, especially with the wrinkles, is that they can't spit unless their hood's open. They have to have their mouth open and that they only spit downward and they throw their venom. And I've actually commented on this because I've been spat on more times than I care to admit. Um, when you watch it, especially in slow motion, you see the undulation of them tossing the venom out, but it's not. It's just because of the strike and the way that their body's designed. You know, it, it, it would be like you throwing a punch, but not moving your shoulders because you don't have shoulders. Does that make sense? <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. It would look it would look very peculiar, right? Called the the flying lotus. The fl- yeah, the flying lotus. So some, flying so this individual shared this today. Um, look at that guy. So Eiffel Tower. So yeah, so this is Hugh Daniel Grobler. Hopefully, they say his name correctly, and. This is a wrinkles standing up at full attention with a partial hood. I don't know how well you guys can see it. Should I zoom in? Can you like full screen it? Oh, hold on. Is that better? Yeah. Okay. And you can see both jets of venom coming straight out. And this snake is literally at 12 o'clock midnight standing straight up. And you can see that it's only using the back third of its body. Mm-hmm. And that just, it, this this one photo disproves all the myth about how they can spit. Um, the following photo is even better because it kind of gives you an idea. You can see the hood is partially open. The mouth is so closed. And you can even see a bit of the tongue sticking out the front. And that's uh, because they don't have the hypodermic tip of a typical cobra they have a grooved fang very similar to a gila monster so it's using the uh, muscle uh, i'm gonna say convulsion for lack of a better word to 
shoot out that venom. And clearly it's not throwing the venom. It's not arcing its mm -hmm. body. It's literally just standing there blasting. So I thought these images were incredible. I'd never seen I'd never seen it in a still photo like this before. You've seen, I've seen high speed stuff, I've seen slow motion stuff, you know, but these photos just just you got to wonder where people come up with that stuff. And you know what? It, it's folklore, man. It's it's folklore because somebody saw it many many moons ago, and they told their grandkid, and that grandkid grew up, and that just, it just sticks with it, you know. These photos, I just, I'd, I'd never seen it like this before. I just thought it was fascinating. And look, you can see, like, look at the spray that is like the first bit of particulates that flew out. Hmm. It's incredible. Now, do you notice between like the African and Asian spitters, are there some that are like, are there, are Africans or Asians more accurate? Uh, I personally, yeah, I personally feel, and uh, people may disagree with me. I personally feel like the the true spitters in Africa are way more accurate than the Asian stuff. Um, they also have a farther distance. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that the worst spitting cobras that I've ever worked with are the Mozambiques, uh, just because they're they're super duper accurate and relentless. Um, that being said, you look at like the equatorial spitter in Southeast Asia, um, they've been known to replenish the venom supply as they're spitting. So it's almost like auto reload. You know what I mean? Yeah. They don't, they don't run dry. So while as one snake may spit two or three or four times and then take a breather so that they can start to replenish those mm -hmm. glands, while as the equatorial, it just keeps going. It just keeps going. It just keeps going. There's high volume of it, you know. I actually, now that I now that you say that, it actually makes me think of that. There's that episode of when Irwin was, I think, in the Philippines or something. And what's those um, the ones that they don't have any venom for? Which one? Which species is that? Um, the Asian, they're like yellow and black. Uh, Semarensis. Yes. Yeah. I remember he found one of the, a small one of those, and that was one of the things he said. He's like, it just it it won't it doesn't run out. Like it yeah. kept spinning and spinning and spinning. I guess he was expecting it to, I guess, like some of that African stuff eventually be done, and it wasn't. Yeah, that thing was that was not a big cobra either. Yeah, there was um one time at underground we had a big like six foot uh, red spitter, um, and it was in the Rubbermaid trash can at the bottom, and. When we remove the lid from the trash can, uh, there's a technique to that. Um, if you watch the episode one of Venomous Etiquette Videos, which, by the way, episode two is out for yes. everyone who wants to know. Um, if you watch episode one, I briefly touch on how to open a trash can lid. Um, we open it. We pop the handle. So you're going to pop the handle, and you're going to open the lid relatively quickly. And we're using that lid as a shield to protect us from whatever's in the trash can. Um, but the biggest thing with that is, uh, the animal at the bottom, is instantly going to look at the light. It's yeah. going to see the light above. It's going to look at it. And now anything that's moving, that's fair game. Um, so at one point we were at underground's retail store and the Cobra's at the bottom of the bucket and it's a, a standard four and a half foot tall Rubbermaid can and it spat up and it wound up hitting the wall above the stack of vision cages 
and we measured the distance and it was 14 feet damn and if you had looked at where the one of the apprentices that was there where he was standing i said i was like hey man back up a little bit and he kind of does one of these and you just watch like you don't see the snake you just see the squirt go <laughs> right past him the geyser yeah literally and and it was like whoa crap and then we removed the animal and put it back and it was fine it only spat the one time but 14 feet and it hit it would have hit him right in the face it would have hit mm -hmm. him smack dab where he was standing oh it would have been perfect but just to see that is incredible that distance i mean because you talk about a six foot animal you know so at least double it um I'm I, I one of the things I like most about the Rinkals is they're small snakes. They only get four foot, five foot's a giant mm -hmm. one. Um and they're nowhere near as good with their aim. Um don't get me wrong, they're extremely accurate, but you can kind of move out of the way if you see it start to start to go, you know. Um what I've been noticing is I have one female that is just relentless, and she's one of my newer females and she will focus in on my right hand because she sees the, the what I'm assuming is the color differential between my pale skin and the black handle. Mm -hmm. Because I can take my other hand and I can there's do more this. contrast. Right. There's whatever it is, she's focused on this hand with the hook. And maybe it's the shininess of the hook. I, I don't know. But I've actually tried to use my other hand to like get her attention. Okay. And she doesn't care. Just blasts this hand. So like now when I take her out, I just wear latex gloves. Because I know this hand and the handle of the hook is just going to get splattered. So, weren't you saying at one point that you weren't much into capes? I think capes are gorgeous, but to me, uh, it has to be the really, really pretty gold Namibian looking ones. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I'm not a fan of the speckling, and I'm not really? a fan I of love those. It's just, you know what it is? Is I'm spoiled because one of the first things that made me interested in snakes was that one reptiles magazine mm -hmm. issue with the golden cape in the namib desert yep. draped over the dead bush and dude that i i took i remember clear as day i went in my dad's desk drawer and i got the the little alligator staple remover yeah it's like a little alligator mouth thing and i very gently peeled the staples out of the binding and i took scotch tape and I taped that centerfold on my wall and people think I'm crazy because most people were putting other kinds of centerfolds in their wall when they were 11, but <laughs> I was putting Cape Cobras and that golden Cape was just, the dude, best. I and had then, about <clears throat> 40 of those from all the different issues taped together above my bed. Oh, that's phenomenal. And that's that was one of it. them. That's the way to do it. So, uh, a few years back, I would say maybe, maybe a decade or so. Um, uh, the owner of Underground, Ryan, his son-in-law bought him a Cape Cobra fresh out of the bush uh, as a gift for his birthday. Um, the snake's name was Barabbas. And uh, this snake was everything that you would want in a golden cape. I'm trying to find you a picture. And for whatever reason, uh, Barabbas died uh, very prematurely. Um, we raised him up to adulthood and then he died a few years later and I wound up actually necropsying him. And, uh, I think I've shown the, the pictures of yeah. his, yeah, with the, the, the weird tumor thing on the inside of him. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't know if I've ever shown him 
alive. I don't think. So, yeah, I don't think you did. I think you just saw the. Let me the find body. the the fillet. Yeah, um, it's it's right around here. Close here it is. So that's a man, that's a species that I feel like just doesn't get talked about enough. They don't, and uh, it's very interesting because they're. Oh, yeah. oh look at that. And I mean, that's a crappy picture inside of a vision cage on a newspaper. But as he got older, those black and brown spots just disappeared. Hmm. You know, and that that snake was a champion. And that's I don't know it. what it is about those in particular that I like so much. Like, I, I know, like, they're I love the speckled ones. Personally, yeah. I like those a lot. They remind me of the buttermilk razors. Yeah, 100%. Um, 100%. But I just like. That's supposed to be one of the most toxic cobras. It is. If I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah. And I th- it might be the most toxic in Africa, I think. I mean, they're freaking awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, no, and one then, no one talks about them. No one talks about And the more west you go, just the lighter they get. And, like, there's some that come out of the southern Namib that are just, like, a, a, a cream, almost a white. Just absolutely stunning. So... Need to see if there's any bite reports from those somewhere floating around. I'd be interested to read that. Oh yeah. Let me see if I have. <laughs> Here is a picture. <laughs> Here's a picture of him, not happy in a deli cup. I was I was doing a, a class on deliing a large snake. So this is a large deli cup. I mean, the cobra's probably the cobra's definitely over five foot. Um, and you picked but, a cape to be the example. Well, I mean, you got to work with what you got. Um, so that was after he had already been in there for a little while, and uh, I was just like, "Oh, I got to take a picture real quick before he moves," you know. <laughs> but uh, toxic cinnamon bun. It's literally a toxic cinnamon bun, and that could not have been comfortable. Hindsight, I feel bad for. Him. <laughs> but. I mean, are they as bad as the forests? Like everyone talks about how how much of a handful forests are. I, I think, don't think I've ever seen a, a picture of a cape that wasn't hooded. Well, all right. So let me put it this way: I think that uh, the I personally feel like forests are way more intelligent than capes. Um, I also feel that uh, the size and the dexterity of the forest gives them the upper hand. Mm-hmm. Because now you have double the size, double the, the length of snake that you're working with, um, and its ability to basically grab on anything like Velcro, uh, that is a challenge unto itself. Uh, if a Cape Cobra is five foot and it stands on, uh, it stands up hooded, you're only looking at maybe 10, 11 inches. If a Forest Cobra is six or seven foot and it stands up, you're looking at four or even five foot stance. So that is intimidating onto itself and difficult to work with because now you're you're that much farther away yeah. in terms of trying to, to get the animal. Um, I feel like if capes had the size and the, the, the dexterity, if you will, they would be just as, as difficult as forests. But I mean, they're pretty high strung though in general. Uh, 100%. And you know, it's not, it's not that they're high strung like a brown snake. Um, it's it's purely defense. It's I'm going to get away, but I know I'm not as fast as you, human. So <laughs> I'm just gonna fight. You know what I mean? Yeah. If that makes any sense. Hmm. 
Yeah, man. Capes are also, it seems like people like they used to be kept a lot more too than than they are now. Well, it's because they were imported a lot more. You know, oh, you right. had, yeah, you know, you had you had uh, uh, exporters in Mozambique that would get permits to pull stuff out of South Africa, or they didn't have permits and they didn't care. Or you know, you had uh, guys out of Botswana that would take stuff from Namibia because the Namib government didn't care. There was no Namib government back then. You know, Sudwest Africa, however you want to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that just it just changed. You know, the dynamics of what was open and what was closed changed, and we, we lose species that way in terms of that. Because if no one's captive breeding them, that's it. And that, I feel like Cape Cobras were definitely one of those things where it's like, oh, we'll just catch more. Oh, I'll just buy more on the next shipment. Like Ceratophora. Yeah. Like, like Ceratophora, 100%. You know, like, like my ashes. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll probably never see another live ashes in the U.S. I, I probably will never see another live ashes ever again unless I go to Kenya. You know, especially now because now Kenya is not exporting anything. Let's go to Kenya. I'm, I'm down. I want to go visit BioCan. Let's go see. Some uh, to say, I hundred percent, hundred percent. That mountain range, yeah. That mount, that mountain range where the to say I come from that borders Ethiopia. The amount of diversity of East African species that's on that those foothills is just absolutely amazing. I mean, I think there's like six different species of bitus. I mean, because you have East African gaboons, you have East African puff adders, mm-hmm. uh, you have uh, parviacula. Yep. Um, there's a, a highland species of Kodal, a brief Kodalis that gets up that way. Um, and then, you know, you've got uh, Naja Nubii, the, the Nubian, you've got the red spitters, you've got the ashes. Uh, there's an eastern blackneck group that's over there. Uh, uh, I believe it, it's not Wood Eye. I can't remember. But there's just, and then the, the Atheris. You know what I mean? The, the Rungwiensis, Desei. Um, well, I'm forget. there's another one. Nietzsche are over there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that's such a rich snake mountain range. You know, and the lizards and the chameleons. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Those those Kenyan Jacksons are just ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, let's and just going back to cobras, like Ethiopian cobras. Ethiopian cobras, they're normal Egyptians. They're they're Naja Haje. They're mm-hmm. they're nothing. They're genetically the exact same species as everything else from the Nile River Delta. However, they're blood red. And like dude, to see that in the wild, that would be amazing. Yeah. One day. One day we'll make it to the dark continent. <clears throat> that is something that, that I do find funny, like especially with Nasacornis. You see pictures of Nasacornis in the wild, and then you see pictures of Nasacornis in captivity, and it's like, what the hell happened? Yeah. Like, why even bother having all those colors and stuff if you're just gonna be caked in mud all the time? Yeah, yeah, it, 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 it's a question that gets asked frequently, and it's not like it sheds off in one shed. You gotta get like three or four sheds to get all that jungle skin off. Because it's just so coarse. Yeah, exactly. It's so coarse, you know. And it, it's crazy. I had a, uh, I had a really, really blue uh, Central Congo locality Nazicornis, mm-hmm. and we used to mist it, not because it needed the humidity. It was perfectly fine and happy, but. It was clean from the from the jungle, so it had its its real colors. But the scalation was so sharp, the mm-hmm. crest on each scale was so sharp that the beads of dew would just stick to it and just cascade down towards its mouth and just roll over the sides of the face. And we would miss it just to watch the water bead off of its skin. Absolutely amazing. 
I love the ones with the crazy long nasal horns. Oh, yeah. They look like little chainsaws. Yeah. Almost gives a a Malagasy leaf nose a run for its money. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Out of all the bitters, though, man, like Nasacornis and Parviocula and are cool, but like the Cornuta and the Caldalis are what do it for me. Dude, Rubidia. Dude, oh. the, the rubies, man. Oh, amazing. And 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 as much as I think Perengii would kind of be a pain in the ass because they're only this freaking big, it would still be cool to see those goofy little fish eyes sticking out yeah. of the sand. <laughs> you know, I think that'd be awesome. You know, because as much as I love my Sarastis, like, they don't bury themselves like Perengii. Like, that thing disappears. Like, you know how they go in the sand, you can kind of still see the S? Mm-hmm. But I, I just can't imagine being barefoot and just walking through the sand and just, they're just there and you have no idea. Like, those those what are the six-legged sand spiders or whatever they are? Mm-hmm. Uh, those things creep me out, man. You can't see it. It's invisible. So that's another group, though, that I wonder. Like, it would be interesting to see, like a phylogenetic tree, because how you can get like the Rubida and the Cornuta and the Caudalis from like a Gaboon. Yeah, it's like how is there not more going on there? Like, yeah. was it just a thing where they were like, "Yeah, these kind of look like these. Let's just lump them because they they do kind of look like a puff. They do kind of look like a like a Gaboon." But they're way smaller, so yeah. Like Parviocula it, makes sense. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Because Parviocula gets you know rhino size. I just I think it also comes down to opportunistic evolution. You know, you mm-hmm. look at a snake like a puff adder, which is I believe arguably the most widely distributed snake in all of the African continent. Um, I mean, going so far as to say that there's some you know East Egyptian localities. You know, there's uh, Western, sub-Western Saharan localities. Um, Because they they, they adapted to to just be able to take it all. You know what I mean? And you figure a Gaboon Viper, it's going to survive because of its mass, because the prey items that are going to be walking by are probably bigger prey items. Mm -hmm. So therefore, it's designed this girth, much like, you know, bloods and short tails. And then you look at something like Bittus atropos, the coloration is, I mean, it's literally the, the rock rattlesnake of, of Central Africa mm-hmm. or Southern Africa. So the coloration and, and the blending, and you look at the, you look at rhino viper, which is stunningly, amazingly beautiful, but you'd never see it because it's caked in mud. What's the point, right? Yeah. And then you look at atropos where it's not caked in mud and it literally, just like the, the lepidus of America, it looks exactly the same as the rocks it's sitting in. Mm-hmm. Or the pyrus, you know, like we have our white pyrus and blue pyrus. It literally matches the stones. The atropos is the same. I that, it would be interesting to see sort of how they all, like, phylogenetically on a tree, you know, where, yeah. who came from what and what broke off of where. And, you know, it was really interesting to see that when they did that with Boiga recently um, yeah. and Toxicodryas and stuff like that. Um, just seeing sort of who came first and then what what branched off from there and by the way speaking of boyga did you uh get a chance to listen to the new field herbing podcast with margot shea uh yes i did so breathtaking episode there's a, it was part one apparently there's a second part that they're that's really at least yes 
Okay. All right. Which I got makes about, sense because it's like you can't yeah. just have an hour and 22 minute long it, yes. episode with Mark O'Shea. Like, there's got to be 100%. So I was listening. I'm about two thirds of the way through episode one. Um, and I was listening. And at one point, Mark O'Shea says, Yeah, you know, we were we saw a couple olive pythons and, and then we saw the, the boiga. And I was like, Mark O'Shea said boiga, not boiga. Boy, I was like, that's how I'm saying it from now on. I don't care what people say. So now all I need is Margaret Shea to say the word colubrid, and I'll be set. I'll be done. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same as Macklet's, man. I, Boiga, I know. Boiga, Boiga. It's just but, a different but, emphasis on but a different now when, <laughs> But now when Owen corrects me, I can be like, well, Marco Shea said Boiga. Yeah. I mean, what are you going to do? <laughs> are you going to argue with Marco Shea? Right. Mr. Taxonomy himself. Speaking of timbers, he that was one that almost killed him was a timber. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Of all the stuff that he's been nailed by, freaking timber that almost put him out. Yeah. And yeah. his his actually his recount of that bite in that venomous snakes of the world was really interesting too, because I want to say he like he lost his vision. Yeah, I believe it. And uh that is just interesting to read. I need to I have that book on my bookshelf. I need to crack it open and flip through it again. Yeah, there was a, a famous story of a, a timber bite from uh, eastern Alabama where an individual was keeping it legitimately indoors and he had other snakes and he got tagged on the finger and the snake never left the cage. I guess it was a maintenance thing and he mm -hmm. you know, didn't gauge the distance right. He got tagged on the finger and immediately called 911. Uh, the paramedics that were sent in the ambulance they had crofab with them and they responded within four minutes of the initial 911 phone call and they found him dead at the kitchen table like this wow just like waiting for them to show up and he was just dead that was it shut was him a, off i used to, when i was working for the budweiser distributor there was one of the guys that worked for one of the wine companies and he actually, I think it was, he had an uncle and this actually was news in South Carolina, but he was more upstate. Right. Apparently he was in some sort of park or something like national, like state park, like mm -hmm. wooded air, like not playground park, but like wooded park. Yeah. And, uh, apparently he got bit by, by one. And I think within 15 minutes he was dead, but it sounds like he had a lot of pre-existing conditions. Yeah. You know, high blood pressure, diabetes, whatever. And, uh, anaphylaxis i think is actually what what dropped him but yeah that's, crazy man yeah you know i have uh i have epinephrine in my uh little emergency bag you know for god forbid i start to feel funny wham you know stick myself with it and there's a lot of controversy to that because depending on the venom the adrenaline will either hurt or hinder um depending on the species, depending on the, the, the toxic cocktail that you're working with at the time. Mm -hmm. But in my personal opinion, and I am not a toxinologist. I am not a medical guy at all. I don't know shit. But to me and the way that some of my mentors explain it to me is I would rather have more damage but beat the anaphylaxis yeah. than to just turn off. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like that was that was my thought process in acquiring that is that I would rather deal with the venom coursing faster, maybe doing more damage, but at least the anaphylaxis is one less thing I have to worry about at the immediate time. You mm -hmm. 
So, and again, that could be a horrible thought process. I don't know. So, hope to hope to God, not I, I never have to do it. We get Jeff Fob on here. That's we do stories. Oh, 100 percent. We got to get him on. He's he's in the the magazine group on Facebook. Which I thought yeah. was interesting because I had posted something and he had responded. It was the question of the month for the poll. Yeah. And I was like, well, Jeff, I was like, Fob's in here. Yeah. Like, and I, I talked to uh, I talked to to Woody about getting uh, uh, Jordan Benjamin on as well because that's that's going to be a, 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 a quote unquote two parter episode if we can grab him on here. The problem is you know getting the guy to be able to sit down. It's like Brent getting him to sit down for two hours is mm-hmm. is difficult because if he's not you know doing seminars in the U.S., he's literally in West Africa saving lives. Yeah. So, hmm. but we are at the two hour and. 20 mark we are almost two and a half hours almost two and a half hours i didn't know how much time delay there was from the uh, initial b-roll so like three minutes, four oh, minutes okay. So. okay yeah so two or two and a half then yeah anything else you'd like to close because i will keep talking about african species for the next six so. hours all right. Uh, this show is brought to you by puget sound pythons please check them out facebook instagram youtube They've got some awesome stuff. They do. I don't know what they have for sale at the moment. I'm sure they have some of those awesome balls that they produced. I'm pretty okay. sure they, they still have some Doomerel, too. Oh, yeah. So be sure to check that out. Uh, issue 24 of the magazine is still in the works. That one's probably going to be a few days past the first at the rate that I'm at currently. Still waiting on some pictures from some folks and some other things, but... Um, it will be here. Just gotta get her done. Get her done. And uh, episode two of Venomous Etiquette videos is on YouTube. Please check it out. Click the like button. Subscribe. I would greatly appreciate it. Uh, it's nothing exciting. It's just procedures and protocols. And tip, this particular episode is tools of the trade. So it goes over uh, different types of hemostats, hooks, tongs. And some procedures and how to use them appropriately. So it actually in, it inspired Canon to get some hemostats. It did, which it is did. a big deal. Yeah, yeah. What was he using before? It wasn't like some Pl- needle nose pliers. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> needle nose pliers. So. Send us a picture. He's like, look what I got. Phil's well, hands are working. He's and not like, even he's not keeping venomous, but it's still funny. Yeah, and and that's the thing is like we 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 can use all the stuff in that video in the harmless capacity there's no reason why the venomous technique and the venomous equipment and the venomous you know protocol can't be translated to harmless stuff too you know absolutely Just try and make us better keepers and if anybody watches the video and they have more stuff they want to add and more stuff they want to teach me rock and roll i'm all about it i love sharing the knowledge i love getting the knowledge and there will be a second episode of tools and equipment um there's probably it's probably gonna be a three-part thing with tools and equipment um the next one will be more, not the next episode, but the next tools episode, when I do decide to make it, uh, it'll be more of the uh, advanced tools, maybe, uh, some of the bagging techniques um, and stuff like that. Uh, and then there will be another episode on medical stuff uh, in terms of needles and probes and ace bandages, things of that sort. So stay tuned, kids. Awesome. Well, this was episode 92 of Snakes and Stogies. 
We'll be back with THP on Thursday. Uh, once again, no idea who we have lined up, but it's going to happen. So, Rock and roll. We will see everybody then, and then we will see y'all for Snakes and Stogies 93 next week. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Thank you very much. <laughs>